0: Hello and welcome to Cage Club, two fans, still 82 movies, one cage. Today we have a bonus episode with a very special guest. Rather than talking about one of Nicolas Cage's movies, we're talking to Marco Kiris, who was Nicolas Cage's stand-in from 1994 through 2005. I'm Joey Lewandowski.
1: And I'm Mike Manzi.
0: And with us, as I mentioned, is Marco Kiris. Hello, Marco. How are you?
2: Good. How are you guys?
0: I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for joining us. This is so exciting.
2: Well, it's, it's equally exciting for myself. I really appreciate the reach out, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. Awesome.
0: As we were talking about on the phone, we talked on the phone a couple of days ago. You were there for the decade of Cage's career, and arguably maybe the greatest decade of any actor ever. I mean, you were there for so many of these movies that we love and that we talked about. So, like, I guess just on a, on a grand scale, what was it like?
2: Like anybody else would say, it was surreal. Well, during the process, it was, it was hard work, and then it transferred into surrealism when you started to see that he became this megastar from doing smaller films. After he won the Academy Award um, on Leaving Las Vegas, things turned uh, big time for us. And, and the perks and the lifestyle and, and, you know, the reception of Camp Cage.
1: And that was fairly early when you started working with him as well, right? Like leaving Las Vegas and the, and the success of that?
2: Yes, that was actually in the first year. So, you know, being kind of like a lonely loser actor type, like most people are who don't succeed, <laughs> I took the job. And uh, didn't think much of it. thought I would, you know, just learn a little bit about filmmaking as being a standard. Never did it before. But uh, by the third film, it was um, Leaving Las Vegas. And I thought it was wow. a nice, gritty, quirky film. Um, mainly shot in L.A. It was a five-week shoot. Four weeks were shot in L.A. And then um, three days, I think, were in... Vegas and a couple of days in Laughlin, Nevada. They split that up and that was it. So I just thought it was a cute little quirky film. I didn't know much about Cage other than what anybody would have read. Sure. And working with him on a couple of films prior, I realized that he was dedicated and generous and uh, somebody was committed to his craft. So doing that film, it was a learning lesson. And after that, I didn't know what was going to happen. But he took a year off after that, almost about nine months. So I, I was looking for another job and didn't know that he was going to win the Academy Award.
0: Yeah, I mean, that really sort of propelled him. And then the, the next three movies he made, if I'm correct, were the three big action movies, right? They were The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off. And you were on all three of those with him, right?
2: Yes, the back-breaking trio films. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was between the, the producers, the director, or the director's. And their ambition and strength. Remember, these are younger directors who were also making their their name in Hollywood. Even John Woo was making his name in Hollywood. You know, he had his karate films and so forth. But to make that name in Hollywood, there was a lot of pressure on all these people. So to do three action films in a row after leaving Las Vegas, I didn't think I'd get through it. Uh, it was. Uh, it literally was backbreaking. I did go to the hospital a couple of different times. Wow. I was sick. I was on intravenous, uh, being fed with nourishment. Uh, I was very ill. So it was. It was tough. And so was everybody else. I didn't know how it was all going to work out.
0: Before we get too far into this career, I want to go back in your career, and I want. How did you get your start in? not even just in Hollywood, when did you know that you first wanted to become an actor? Like, what was your path going from kid to suddenly Nicolas Cage's stand-in? Like, what's, what's the journey there? Because I know you were born in Toronto. Yes. But how do you get from there to Hollywood and then suddenly, you know, side by side with Nicolas Cage for a decade?
2: Well, it's, everything was a fluke and you kind of take different opportunities as they come, <laughs> Joey. And uh, you don't really set your, you know, I came from a very uh, poor, uh, non-speaking English immigrant family. And uh, there wasn't much hope back then in the 60s and 70s in coming in from Toronto, which was kind of like a Cleveland meets Buffalo. Education was not my forte, neither is tech, as my tech kids know. And, and moving forward, I didn't really go to school, and I just got restaurant jobs. And one thing led to the next, and I wanted to discover culture, and I ended up applying to go to, uh, to work, to get a work visa uh, in Paris. And I flew to France, believe it or not, in the uh, early 80s. And I worked in a restaurant there, which was owned by Greek-Americans, who then asked me to come and fly to LA and uh, come and manage their restaurant, which was a big Hollywood heavyweight restaurant. And I was 25 at this point. And so I took that job illegally. They didn't know it was illegal. And uh, (laughs) One thing led to the next. I ended up in Los Angeles as this guy running a restaurant, and it got kind of funky. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just take some acting classes because everybody said, oh, you'd be a great actor. Of course, I never thought about being an actor because I never studied acting. Mm -hmm. But I just thought I'd get through it just because I was so popular in the restaurant. So I took classes. Believe it or not, I met Patricia Arquette, Nick's ex-wife, in my acting class at the Beverly Hills Playhouse including so many other people and I, I kind of you know had a swanky kind of lifestyle as a waiter/ slash manager. One thing led to the next, being illegal was not the right way to go and I was outed and then ended up in jail. and then I ended up uh, in the LA County jail. and then I got uh, bailed out. Wow. and then I had six months to depart and I had to sell my car and my furniture and everything else and I had to flee the country like some some refugee. So I left. I went back to Canada. Once I got to Canada, I won the lottery to win the green card to go back to the States within three months. It's just a big fluke. So I win the lottery, and then I end up going back to the States, if you can believe it, and going back to work in a restaurant. It was one thing after the next, and uh, it didn't pan out, and I realized I'm not a good actor, and I did some acting parts, but it wasn't good enough. So I, I wrapped it all up, and I went home to uh, work in a restaurant, but uh, the times were tough, and I took an, um, extra gigs and an agency in Toronto, which kind of hooked me up for Cage to be a stand-in on a film called Trapped in Paradise. I went on for the audition, which was in Niagara-on-the-Lake by Niagara Falls, about a two-hour drive from Toronto. Okay. I took the job, and within a month of working with Nick in this winter film of 1994, he asked me if I would travel with him as his stand-in. And that wow. started. So you guys it. must have hit it off. Well, I didn't know we hit it off. I mean, I was just doing my job as standing <laughs> under a rock, basically, and standing in the snow and kind of telling them that the marks are this way and the marks are that way, and this is this is your angle, and this is the camera. I didn't think anything of it. But he thought that was going above and beyond what I was doing, and then he asked me to travel with him. The next film was in New York. That's awesome. So I, I took the job. So in a very quick nutshell, that's like 10 years of, of work. That's awesome. To get to that point. Wow. Crazy. So then I ended up having a green card, so since I won the lottery, I had a green card, so I can go back mm-hmm. to the States legally, and nobody could say boo to me at the time. Now I'm a US citizen, but at the time I had a green card. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Crazy story.
0: One thing that we heard when we were doing research on Trapped in Paradise, your first film with him, mm-hmm. was that there was some kind of, like, issue on set, and Nick kind of took over a little bit or acted as director. Is Do you have any recollection of that? Is that something that happened, or is that sort of internet myth?
2: I think it's more internet myth. Um, okay. I think that Nick is always kind of a director, uh, Joey. I can see him kind of directing himself. I felt the director was not much of a director, and I felt the cinematographer, who was Jack Green at the time, he was more directing the shots than the director, and Nick was friends with that cinematographer, who was a, an Academy Award winner or a nominated um, cinematographer. And uh, Nick kind of directed himself, and uh, kind of like, set the stage for the other actors indirectly
0: gotcha that makes sense for every movie that we do we always go through the IMDB trivia and like we always sort of take it all with a grain of salt because we never know what actually happened mm-hmm. and you know what is just hearsay from a third party or whatever so we always sort of like yeah. hear exciting things and not know if they're true but now we're hearing from somebody who was on set so we now we know the truth yes but it's the truth <laughs> that we always knew that Cage knows what he was doing he did and that he sort of you know took care of his own business
2: he really did the truth was Joey that he did especially on that film because it was fairly directionless. So the cinematographer was very good with the um, setting up the shots and Cage was well aware of the camera angles and, and how to direct himself in terms of character where the director was, I felt, and so did everybody else on set, was kind of failing in that department. And the other guys were more comedians than they were actors, though wonderful comedians. And so Nick kind of took over on his own and indirectly guided them.
1: Yeah, and he would go on to direct later on, so I think that finding out that he ended up directing a movie uh, expanded the myth of him sort of taking over as director on this film.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say he was taking over as director, I just felt like he was taking care of himself and knew that he was going to save himself in this picture and if he didn't it would just completely fall apart so he did the best that he could to make the picture work for himself i love him in it yeah. <laughs> he's great in it <laughs> i thought it was good i mean it was an unrealistic brother trio in my opinion i mean the three of those guys were like so far apart sort of had a
1: marx Brothers yeah. <laughs> three stooges thing happening
2: yeah, yeah. they were funnier offset i felt than they were on set especially john lovett's
0: Oh, all right. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Good, good guys overall to hang out with.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, Cage and Lovitz were were pretty friendly. They've been friends for years, from what I understand. And I've seen them at a couple of rap parties and at Nick's house. I didn't see much of Carvey, but uh, they were great offset. Of they had a good chemistry as friends offset.
0: Yeah, I think you can tell that on screen too. That there's a good chemistry. It's just that they're they you sort of want a little bit more because they're three really funny guys, and you know you know that they jive well together. Just you're hoping for a little bit more.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: So from there, you go on to Kiss of Death, right? You said that was filmed in New York?
2: Yes. That was, I would say, the most miserable set I've ever been on in my entire life. <laughs> It was okay. a fucking disaster. I hate it every minute.
0: And that's what David Caruso, right off the heat of NYPD Blue, right?
2: Yes. I, wasn't he on the Miami one at that point? I think he was doing the Miami uh, version of it. Oh, maybe. I think... But half that I movie takes wrong.
1: place at the strip club. It was still yeah, yeah.
2: a bad experience. It actually w- it was a horrible experience. Um, and that was a <laughs> oh. shitty strip club to begin with. And it was a real strip club. <laughs> But, um, oh. <laughs> and it wasn't half the film, but it, set, it felt like half the film. It was, I am guess, like kind of 10 days filmed in that strip club.
0: That movie's memorable to me, I think to both of us, to both me and Mike, in that it's probably physically the biggest cage has ever mm-hmm. been in a movie. As Little Junior, he's just gigantic. So now, to be his stand-in on that movie, did you have to get gigantic too?
2: I wasn't gigantic, but I was eating myself into that position. Um, so I would say wearing, <laughs> wearing a tank top was not my my best look, but uh, I did gain kind of larger flappy arms. I do have a photograph of he and I together, and I did have that, that goatee, which was both of ours were natural, and I cropped my hair like him. So I looked as good as I can to be like him, but I was not, you know, I didn't have a trainer. I was, you know, it was sure. hot. It's New York. It's the summer of 94. Mm-hmm. It's miserable. So I did whatever I could to be a part of it.
1: So it's kind of left uh, up to you as the stand-in to sort of change yourself with method to match whoever you're standing in for, right? No, Did anyone actually say, you need to gain weight or you need to bulk up?
2: No. I mean, it was the beginning of this camp cage thing, and there was such a minor mm-hmm. camp at the time. Mike, okay. starting on his second film, I had to put myself up. I took the train there from Toronto. I was making 12 bucks an hour. It was on a voucher, that's how they worked it back then. Uh, I'm not sure if they still do it that way, but I'm kinda guessing they do, so, but you also had to be SAG. So you'd be a SAG Extra Voucher, that's how they worked it. And at the time, in 1994, it was $12 US, and I netted about eight or nine bucks an hour. And I had to put myself up, which I did. I only worked about three days a week because that's all that Nick uh, worked. And the uh, AD was a big fucking prick who looked like Yogi the Bear. (laughs) But didn't act like Yogi the Bear. He acted like asshole Trump. He was a (laughs) prick. Nobody liked him. I hated him. And he gave me grief about being on the set and having to be a knuck to come into New York City and take away an American job. Of course, I told him to fuck off and I said he can speak to the boss. (laughs) And that would be Cage. So uh, they kind of left me alone, but I didn't make any money. I kind of like went into debt working on the film, but I looked at it as an experience. I do remember Caruso uh, being flustered often, if not every day, about his lines. He couldn't remember his lines. (laughs) I think that comes across on screen. Well, off screen it was a lot, it was a bigger (laughs) nightmare. Because remember, it's like 100 degrees, it's the summertime, you're in Brooklyn, you're in Queens, you're in parts of Manhattan, and Nick never forgot a line. And he couldn't remember a line. So the frustration was between uh, Barbary Schroeder, the director, who is obviously French from Paris, was having, you know, to deal with these two actors, one who was a complete thespian and the other one was a TV actor who couldn't remember his lines. And there was a lot of <laughs> the word fuck was up all day long. Fuck, 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 fuck. What's the line? <laughs> fuck, 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 That went on from, It was exhausting. So if you were
0: only making twelve dollars an hour and you know netting eight or nine, I guess this was before to steal your phrase before cage wage, right? When did cage wage start? When like you sort of hit the big time and sort of the whole his whole crew, his whole posse, his hair and makeup and everybody were all on Cage Wage with you?
2: I think it was, a, it was a variety, it was different times for different people. Um, okay. But for me, it was on Face Off. Okay. So it kicked it on Face Off. Prior to that, I was decently compensated on Con Air, but not quite. And The Rock, I really wasn't because there was uh, inner politics between um, the the assistants with Cage and myself. And so they kind of like kept me on a, on a lower kind of daily voucher but a better voucher while I was in uh, San Francisco. Gotcha. So, it didn't really work as well as I thought it would, and then I was kind of threatening to quit, and then I uh, I got my way through Cage, who signed off on everything along with his manager and his uh, agent. That was awesome. Yeah.
0: And so one more question about Kiss of Death before we move on. Yes. My favorite moment I think in that movie is when <laughs> Cage bench presses a stripper. Yeah. Uh, did you ever have to, you know, as a stand-in, do anything resembling bench pressing a stripper? No.
2: <laughs> I think that was considered more of a stunt thing, because if I dropped her, you know, then there's an insurance lawsuit thing and going sure. on. I'm just in the idiotic oh, yeah. standard. I'm trying to remember the the, the stripper. Was that the? Um was that the actress? Was that? Um...
0: I don't even remember if she's like a main character or not. I think she's just no. like a basically a prop on screen.
1: But she comes back in another movie down the line. Remember we yes. and we realized that she was the bench pressed oh. girl. Yes,
2: yes, yes. <laughs> something Hope. <laughs> no, something. Her name was Something Hope. She's she's actually a New York actress. She was really lovely. She was on The Weatherman later on.
0: Oh, okay. That's yeah, it. Yeah. yeah.
2: She was actually an actress back then as well.
0: That actually leads me to another question. What you said about you know as a stunt. So on a movie like The Rock or Con Air or Face Off or a lot of them, really. So Cage is doing his thing. You're doing his thing. There's also stunt people doing their thing you're all basically playing the same character yes like how does that work like what's the interplay between not just you and cage but also you know one or more stunt guys
2: well well you have obviously the star nick cage and then you have the the stunt guy does anything that requires a stunt under the sag ruling okay so uh anything that's not a stunt becomes the stand-in slash photo double which would be me the things like on the rock so when he was waving those flares those green flares and he's on his knees on alcatraz uh, waving mm-hmm. the planes to try to, you know, to, to flag him down. Those wide shots are me. Wow. So I did all those shots from behind. Anything and everything you saw there, that was not considered a stunt. Uh, Nick did all the close-ups, uh-huh. of course. And then I did the far away shots. I'm even more
0: impressed cool. now, Marco. That's
2: amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I did pretty much a lot of stuff that, that you don't see his face in the photo double stuff. I had done, I would say, most of them. If they didn't require wow. a stunt thing. I even drove the cars in 8mm and some on uh, gone in 60 seconds. That didn't require stunt driving. Did you
1: ever consider maybe getting certified as a stunt actor as well at any point just so you could sort of corner the market there for cage and do both at any point no
2: my body wasn't wasn't physically ambitious i will tell you the truth (laughs) i really had no interest i was just trying to get through the day i'm not an athlete i'm an older person i'm kind of cages age i was never an athlete guys i was just a guy who stumbled upon this job and i was just trying to figure out what i was doing and why i was doing it and would it lead to anything else and or do i just want to do this and walk away a couple of years. So no, I had zero interest in anything. I was just like, there I am on set 14 hours a day. Use me, abuse me, but don't ask me to stunt it up because I'm not stunting for anybody. I didn't care about the money. I was compensated enough and the rest of it, they can eat balls. No.
0: <laughs> so from there you go on to leaving Las Vegas, which we kind of talked about it a little bit already. Yeah. Did you get a sense on set? You said it was like a little movie, but did you get a sense on set that like it was going to be like an Oscar movie? Like I don't know if there's like because I've never really been on set, especially not for an extended period of time, like the whole shoot. Like, is there like a buzz that you're like, oh, something special is happening here? Or you just knew like it was a little movie and just to sort of hope people saw it? Uh,
2: I think it was more of the latter. Uh, I'll tell you the okay. truth, Joey. I, I thought it was, hopefully people will see it. It was a cool, fun film. It was very dark. I mean, I read the script. On set, it was always a, a there was a dark ambiance all the time. There was minimal conversation between anybody from crew to director to actors. It was pretty much a director's venue with their actress and everybody else was off to the side come in hit your marks and go away that I mean and I mean that in terms of hair makeup wardrobe standards anybody else so they were in their zone and we were the outer circle who just came in to you know fluff them up for a moment and then walk away but it was it was considered an art film back then guys there were no independent films that were up for any Oscars you know the spirit mm-hmm. award thing that award show came up around that time but the spirit awards weren't even invented until then, so Hollywood was not into small independent films, or um, you know, uh, you know, celebrating them. So we didn't think anything of it, other than it's it's a good film. It'll get him noticed, and maybe there'll be another film down the line that uh, he'll get to do that could be an Oscar-worthy film with a bigger budget. I mean, yeah,
0: no, absolutely.
2: No, I I didn't sense the Oscar buzz at all. I sensed that it was going to be a good movie, that people are going to like it, and the critics are going to love it. But I didn't think anything past that.
0: So at the Academy Awards where he won Best Actor, were you there or were you watching it from home? Or what was that night like for you?
2: Uh, I was watching it from home. We were filming The Rock at the time when he won. So I was uh, back in my uh, little apartment that I was staying in in uh, in Los Angeles because we were back in L.A. after Alcatraz because it was already winter. Yes, I was back in L.A. at that time. And staying in a in a little apartment at a friend's place. I was not there, obviously. He was there with his, you know, the people that you're allowed to be there. And the Oscars only allow a couple of people to show up. Like they don't invite a whole family or entourages. They allow you to have one or two people, and that's it. He was a first time nominee. Right. You know, and he beat out Sean Penn, I think, that year. Is that correct?
1: The Dead Man yeah, Walking. Yeah,
2: I think Monkey Dead was a Dead Man Walking film, and uh, I think that he was the favorite to win, and uh, Cage won out, this small independent film. Like, you know, Dead Man Walking seemed like an independent film, but the production value was high and uh, backed by studios, whereas this was an independent European production, leaving Las Vegas, because all the producers were European. They were French and English, and the production was French. And the cinematographer, was also the camera operator because in Europe, the camera operator is the cinematographer. So you don't split the two. He does both jobs. And he was the brother of actor Aiden Quinn. Oh. Declan Quinn was his name. That's it. Declan Quinn. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of cameos were in that film. You know, from Lou Rolls, Mr. Soulman himself, to Julian Lennon, to Martin Landau's daughter, to a whole bunch of other people. And they were kind of friends with uh, the director, Mike Figgis. And so he brought in and had that influence to do this small hard film. it's awesome.
0: So then you said you took like nine months off or Cage took nine months off. So you were sort of looking for jobs. And then how does he like when he signs on to do The Rock, how do you so for any of these movies, does he reach out to you? Does his people reach out to, it, to you? Does like the somebody on set of a movie reach out to you? Like, what's the process like when he signs on to a movie? How do you get a call to like join him on set for The Rock?
2: Uh, it's basically his people so it's he's got his assistants his production uh people he he started up a production company called Saturn Productions which I'm sure you're aware of yep up on the uh, 9000 block of the 9000 Sunset Boulevard uh building which is a very famous building in in LA and it's his people it's not his agent it's not his manager it's the assistants and he has a few of them and they kind of like put everybody together the transport team the hair the makeup guys you know there's prep time there's um production time there's getting to set, getting to the city to get all these things together. So there are no hiccups when you show up. Like when he shows up, it should all be ready to go. You read the script ahead of time. Back then they used to mail you the scripts. You'd read things. You'd kind of know what you got to bring in terms of clothing because you're going to be in two, for example, The Rock. It was uh, in both San Francisco and Los Angeles. It was about a five-month shoot approximately with reshoots. And uh, you, and it was over the fall and winter into early spring. So there's you know a lot of wardrobe, a lot of cold nights because San Fran was most of it was shot at nighttime on Alcatraz so you got to think about all those things and you got to be prepped but they help you with that
0: of all the directors that you worked with I mean there's still a whole lot that are active but as we're recording this I mean director Michael Bay now has a new movie in theaters there's a Mm -hmm. there's a lot of internet lore out about you know the kind of guy and the kind of director he is but what were your experiences with him?
2: I got to tell you that, you know, I I hear and I read about a bunch of shit about him. Uh, He, to me, is one of my favorite directors. Really? To work with this guy, he was a commercial director. Brookheimer's a big macho guy. Remember, these are tough, cool Republican dudes. These are guys and dudes, (laughs) these are Trump kind of guys. (laughs) <laughs> and and I'm saying that in a good way, not in a bad way. They're, they're, sure. In terms of conservative values and, and strength and being all American and, you know, yep. bomber flyers and all that kind of stuff. It's patriotic, very patriotic. Yeah, yeah. So Michael Bay, in my opinion, is the essence of an American macho director. He yells all the time. But that's who he is. I mean, people are just like, why is he yelling? Because he always yells. I mean, I yell all day long. Ask Blake. <laughs> you know, the guy yells about everything, but he knows what he's doing. I mean. I didn't see him, in my opinion, go go wacky or go out of line the entire five months that I was on that set he was dead set on what he wanted to shoot he would often take the camera himself and do those shaking kind of camera shots but he would do it himself because oh. he liked it his shaking way versus the way the first camera operator did it his name was Mitch something <laughs> and Mitch was a great camera operator but Mike was like I oh, like a fucking sissy move let me do it let me do it I gotta go shoot it so he would just grab the camera and he just shake it. this is how I want it shaking this is how I want it shaking because the, the camera operator is like "Whoa! how much can you shake the camera shake it a lot shake it a it's like a fucking video. That's how <laughs> Michael Bay would work it. But it's his film and it's his direction. He's paid to direct that. He's coming off of commercials. And that's what Brookheimer usually does. He brings in commercial directors. and Because uh, he does commercial films. So he always starts them off. He always hires commercial directors who transfer themselves into um, films. So I thought Michael Bay was great. All the way around, I was looking to not like him. But I liked him all the time. He was just, he's an intense guy who barely slept, who knew every angle, every shot. You couldn't tell him anything he didn't know. He was just like, walk it, no, it's gotta be this way, that way. No, this sucks, stare that down. No, the lighting's terrible here, move on. Oh, we need another hour for the lighting. Fuck the lighting, let me just shoot it. I'll shoot it. <laughs> and he would just do it. And people were just like, oh, okay, where's the actor, get him ready. Fuck it, we need makeup and hair. He looks great, let's shoot it. And he would just do it and do it and do it. And so. I have a lot of respect for him.
0: That's awesome. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah, that movie's great.
2: Yeah, it really is. Great film.
0: And so that movie also has probably, at least to this point in his career, the biggest name that he acted against, right, in, in Sean Connery. So, I mean, did you, I'm not, again, this is sort of my ignorance showing a little bit, but, like, in terms of a stand-in, do you have, like, scenes with him? Like, is he acting at you? Or is he acting at Cage? Or is it, like a, is it a combination of the two?
2: No. When it comes to such a hot shot like uh, Connery, it is Cage and Connery. It's the C.C. Okay. show. So they, they're they not venturing out. <laughs> There is no stand-in, going to stand in the way of Cage and Connery. Sure. Um, If it was another actor and there has been many, it it was me many times. But um, not with Connery. Connery was James Bond and uh, he commanded attention. Connery was a star. So it was all about Sean Connery and second fiddle was Nick Cage on that film. And whatever Connery said, no matter what the hours were, Connery got his way. Like that was it. It, They brought in Michael Ovitz at the time, the president of uh, Disney Pictures, because he had a couple of conflicts with uh, Michael Bay and you know, a couple of other issues. It turned out to be Connery's way. Whatever he wanted, he got it. Too much smoke in the set, kill the fucking smoke because Connery doesn't want it. <laughs> so the scenes were rehearsed with those two guys and shot with those two guys.
1: But there are many times in Cage's films where we are seeing the back of your head?
2: Uh, Yeah, there are.
1: Like in a two-shot and stuff, you would stand in with certain actors at times? With
2: or... with a uh, day player actors. Um, You know, okay. and, and that's not only... Those are because they run out of time. For example, you have like a 12-hour door-to-door contract, and now Nick Cage is gone. He's back to his hotel room, and they've run over, and they're like, uh, you know, you've got to do the scene, get into hair and makeup, wardrobe, and you're opposite, for example, the mailman. Um, So you would say a couple of lines, and they'd focus on, of course, the mailman, and maybe they catch your ear or something, and they cut your dialogue. But you're Cage in those scenes.
0: So now, did you learn all of his lines in all of his movies, too, or just sort of what you needed to know for those kind of the player takes
2: uh just those things that i needed to know gotcha for the most part yeah because a lot of it's uh, it's very dialoguey and you're, you're basically going yep. through the motion what they wanted to see was the stand-in being in motion in character so i would walk and okay. move in character as he was doing a slow walk to something or crawling you'd crawl in character it wasn't much about the dialogue it was really about the movement because you're you're focusing with the uh-huh. camera So it became the camera and the standard had to be in sync and assuming that Cage is going to do it the exact same way.
1: So there were times where you almost had to be like a mimic or act like Cage would act that time. So you had to bring up some acting skills there
2: well I I, I don't know if they were acting skills I would consider the mimicking skills okay. I, I I would not rate me as a good actor I would rate me as a good mocker and I think I I I copied and pasted fairly well so uh, that was that was my uh, forte so when there were shots that were you know some there were running shots there were jogging shots there were you know all kinds of different movement shots up and downstairs but you would run in character in motion in the exact same tone that he would and that's what the camera wanted to see whether it were two or three cameras, dolly shots, long lenses, you had to make sure you knew how to walk and move at the same time in his character for that film.
0: Because that's one thing that we noticed on the podcast, especially as we watched all of his movies. Not only does he do every genre of movie and sort of have to You know fit into that genre both you know in terms of his acting choices but his movement but also he's a very sort of specific way of moving and specific way of doing things Mm -hmm. so for him to be able to do all that stuff and for you to be able to mimic it or mock it or I mean that's really impressive for you too like to be able to because he's one of the most that's what drew us to him I think in the first place is how diverse of an actor he is and if he has to do all that stuff, you have to do all that stuff. So that's like a really high praise to you, I
2: think. I'll take the compliment because I, I did work <laughs> into that level, Joey. I, you know, I read the script ahead of time, whatever the script would be. For example, let's call it The Rock. And I would read the script and I would, you know, kind of dive into the character the way I think that Nick would do it, that I'd watch a couple of rehearsals at the beginning to kind of get a flavor for his character. And then I would just kind of copy what he did for the most part. And it worked. I was in his motion and I was in his mindset and uh, I watched everything that he did did every rehearsal every movement every flick of a of a a hand of a finger he really liked that because he saw that i was paying attention and i wasn't missing a beat because there's no time on a film set to fuck around so if you're not there doing the job for that actor and dropping your ego and being that guy when nick is not there you know to rehearse then you shouldn't be there
0: yeah absolutely so then we we take to the skies for con air yes which I mean, if you if you put the, the the cast lists of all the movies that you were in side by side, I mean that's got to be the craziest cast, probably,
2: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, well, yeah, I guess. Con Air. Not like not like crazy
0: in a bad way, but crazy in like a big ensemble. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was pretty great. It was too much of a macho set for me, <laughs> you know, between the Malkovich and uh, and Danny Trejo and stuff. It was like, you know, you had this this this, you know theater actor John Malkovich you had John Cusack who was already a Hollywood heavyweight as we all know from indie films to like breaking over into these particular films and you know smaller actors who were making their own mark in things and uh it it was tough again Simon West was a director and he was a commercial director doing those famous Budweiser commercials prior to Con Air and then did Con Air which ran over weeks uh over budget But it was tough for me. I hated working on that film in Utah. It fucking sucked. It was in Nevada and Utah until we got to LA. It was just a lot of testosterone. And these guys were like just you know they thought you'd go and they wanted to go, you know strippers and they want the drink after work and their 15 hour days on set they the set started at 5 30 it ended at 8 30 when the sun went down it's july it's in the middle of the salt flats it's 872 degrees you're like what the fuck am i doing here like there's no shade there's nowhere to hide it was a fucking <laughs> dump there were sandstorms and all kinds of crazy shit that went on I remember there was one shot with uh, John Malkovich when they were blowing up the plane or when they blew up. Remember, I also played the part in that Sindillos pilot. Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, the hotshot Colombian boy with that slick black hair, which, uh, by the way, they didn't give me any makeup or hair. It was all my own doing. Okay. So uh, the truth is I look like that every day to this day. So it's just, it's my, it's my greasy Greek look. (laughs) with these guys so I'm standing behind the monitor and I'm watching these the shot Uh, Nick's not in the scene but you can't hide because you know Nick's in his trailer and it's about a 15-20 minute drive away from the set because the set was basically the entire landscape so I'm you know behind the thing and I'm watching this DP and I'm watching the director and here comes you know John Malkovich with all his convicts and they're all walking Just like boom 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 this whole explosion you know this is after he says "Saya." Nara and I was like you've got to be kidding me is this going to make it the cut it's like Nara <laughs> Nara and I was like oh my god it's like a weeho moment what is going on it's not even Halloween so I'm thinking they've got to cut this out but they didn't cut it out they kept it <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm looking, and the, the director and cinematographer are both British, they're from the London area, and they are these, you know, your typical British metro male kind of guys, hello, how are you, all Right, right, right. yes, everyone, right? oh, it's a lovely show, it's a lovely day out there, oh, so we just need a, a 12K, with a little 6K, oh, it'll be fine. And I'm listening to like oh my, and these big watchers yeah, let's go shoot the fucking thing off. Right, right, right. <laughs> minutes, please. no So I'm just I'm listening to stuff. I'm thinking this is fucking ridiculous. So I'm watching them direct this scene as the as Malkovich is coming up with all the convicts and they're like walking this macho boom 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 boom. You know like busty men. And Malkovich has this weird walk. Remember he's a theater actor trying to be some crazy ass lunatic macho guy in this thing. Right. Uh, but he does it through dialogue and and facial expressions versus through physical action his physical body doesn't match his face I'm watching this guy and he's big he's like six foot three and he's heavy like blubbery heavy fat guy and I'm seeing this guy walk and it's just like he looks like he's sashaying and I'm thinking is that a sash or a dash and it's just a little swishy and thisy and dishy. And I'm thinking, this doesn't look macho for all these. Guys. I'm like, this is not happening. And they're all watching tough, boom, boom, boom. And there's the middle of it in this orange jumpsuit is Malkovich just swishing to the right, swishing to the left. Big guy. And I'm thinking, How's this ever going to make the cut? And I hear the director saying, "Oh my God, this 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 looks a little bit off." <laughs> and he says, we, "We've we've got to cut, cut, cut." He's like screaming, "Cut, cut, cut!" And they're like, "Change the lens, change the lens." So they cut the lens to shoot him from the waist up, oh. so you, you you don't see the movement <laughs> below. Being and, and so and I was looking through the monitor. I'm like, okay, that works for me now because it focused more on his face versus the walking, which was really you know. Hard, hard 90 degrees right and hard 90 degrees left. <laughs> so it, was like, it was a little bizarre in the desert amongst these guys.
1: I guess that's one way to direct. Instead of talking to the actor, yeah. telling him to walk one a certain way, you just use a different lens and cover it up and move on. We don't have time <laughs> yeah. for this. Get, we're in the desert. It's too hot.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that was kind of like their take on it. They were, they were big on, uh, on the scenery shots versus the directing the actors. Remember, it's a commercial director mm, and a commercial right. cinematographer, so they're making a commercial film for a commercial producer, Jerry Bruckheimer, and and you know and, and basically blasting out this stuff with Nick Cage in a in a wig, which on me looked like tiny Tim.
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask about that hair, dude. Like that might be. That's one of his most famous hairdos, so I guess you had to sort of embody that hair as well, right?
2: I did when I wore the wife beater. Of course, my arms are half the size of his, but uh, at least I wasn't so heavy. And then I would you know, take the wig off and put the slick hair back on to um, stand in for Cusack. That was the only film I stood in for two guys. Both Cage and Cusack, because they weren't in the same scenes and we were in the desert. I didn't do it in LA, but I did it while we were in Utah, Nevada, because they couldn't bring another stand -in in, so they asked me to do double duty. They were the same height, same body frame, except I would just switch wigs and shirt. So a lot of my photographs show that white shirt that Cusack wore and then I would flip over and wear the white wife beater. Huh. Wow. So,
1: well, this all right. is uh, I had another question. When we were researching Con Air, you know, there's all these really tough guys, like everyone looks like a wrestler yes. to a degree, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> and Danny Trejo was asked, you know, who on set would you never mess with out of all these guys? Was the scariest right. dude, the he baddest. Was the scariest, dude. meanest dude here and he said Cusack. He <laughs> said, you look into Cusack's <laughs> eyes and is just like darkness or something and that um, he would never mess with a guy like that. Um, what, what is your experience working with him <laughs> as his stand-in?
2: Uh, I didn't experience that at all. I think like, Cusack was probably the most regular guy huh. on the set. Okay. Cool. <laughs> to me, he was like a Joe Smith kind of dude who could have worked at IBM and hung out and had a couple of cigarettes and he went out and had beers with him.
1: Wow, just your average ordinary guy then.
2: Exactly. He was like your typical Chicago neighborhood kind of like, dude, it's happy hour. Let's go and have a drink. It's all fine. And Danny, what are you doing tonight? I'm going to go and watch a movie. Okay, great, dude. Maybe I'll come with you. He was, just that kind of guy. Because
0: he's of particular interest to us because he's been in like three or four different Cage movies if you consider adaptation because he's only in that like that one scene when they're doing the, the John Malkovich scene. But like mm-hmm. we keep having him, he keeps showing up in his Cage movies and so we love that Trejo story. So I'm glad that we got another perspective sort of cast him in a, in a better light.
2: I'm wondering if Trejo was just playing with you on that. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's... Uh... I don't think that sounds like Trejo and, and, you know, having fun discussions with him. He was the most intimidating guy and I think that maybe he could... I think maybe he's playing you with that or, or playing whoever he was talking to. And I'm, you know, he went for the straightest looking character and said, That guy scares me. That maybe makes sense. Maybe because <laughs> he's such a straight looking, normal, Midwestern, all American guy. And everybody else is such a lunatic on that set, uh, including Cage, you know. So sure. I think that that's where Treyo was coming from saying, That scares me that he's such a normal <laughs> dude.
0: I buy that definitely.
2: That's my take on it.
0: So from Con Air, we go to Face Off, which is the first of two different movies you did with John Woo, right?
2: That's correct.
0: And so Face Off is epic. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's there's a lot of movies that might fit this description, but like Face Off might be the craziest movie that Cage has ever been in, in like the best way. Like it's it's wonderful. So what was it like? Okay, so okay, here here's a question for you. Yeah. So you have been your career mimicking Cage, but mm. now you have to mimic cage mimicking Travolta?
2: That's correct.
0: So how how was that process like?
2: Again, uh, I'll tell you the truth, Joey. I wasn't thinking that much about it. It was such a that was an e- beyond exhausting movie. Remember, this is the third action film in a row. We had right. just finished Con Air. In fact, we didn't How long finish it, Con just, Air.
0: Just to interrupt you real quick, what's what time frame were those three films recorded over or filmed over?
2: Well, they were one after the next. Oh boy. Uh, so it was uh, it was what it were, they were? '96 into '97, should I say wow. almost? So three
1: and two years. That's
2: correct. And they they literally overlapped, um, especially Con wow. Air into Face Off. We didn't finish Con Air. We were three behind on con air and they'd already started filming face off almost three weeks prior Wow. and they were shooting a Travolta stunt scenes and all kinds of second-unit stuff by the time we got on remember he's coming in from an L a uh, studio at this point with a with a with that bad tiny Tim wig and then coming into this you know short short tiny cropped hair with a completely different character playing two different characters. And so his head's in semi, you know, a little messed up in terms of characters. He was dead on on everything because he was such a professional guy. And I had to switch over. It was like one day we're on Con Air and the very next day we're on Face Off and wardrobe, hair, makeup, everything changes. But we also went back to Con Air while we were face, filming face-off uh, guys, um, because we had to do a bunch of pickup shots, including my close-up as Sandino's pilot if up in the uh, Van Nuys Hanging or in the airport. We were kind of pulling in 18 hour days because we have to go back and forth until we finished Con Air. Wow, it's like a gauntlet. It, it was it was crazy, but to play those characters, um, I just mimicked Cage, whatever he did, and if he was you know, a little jumpier and edgier as, as Troy, I kind of like was I felt that little wiredness and I did it and uh, and I just kind of played around with it each and every time when Travolta's character was a little more you know serious and sensitive um, as the FBI dude um, I was just you know quieter just I just whatever Cage did I just kind of did to me it wasn't two different characters it was just mimicking whatever Nick was doing that's a
1: good way to yeah that's that's a good way to sort of simplify it right is just focus on what Nick's doing as opposed to the two characters sounds good
2: you also have to remember it was tough because uh, uh, John Wu really couldn't speak English Oh. so um, and that was tough so there was a, a bit of a translation issue with the director and actors and so forth and his executive producer Terence Chang helped explain certain things and so when you're rehearsing and trying to go through the marks and you're you're talking to John Woo which I did pretty much I'm gonna say a lot of rehearsals if not most of the rehearsals it was a lot of work to get through those rehearsals with the director he respected everybody on set so he treated me that way he would treat cage he actually made me sit next to him watching the monitors i was like no no i'm fine i'll sit back here he pulled the chair and says sit here you watch camera i want you here (laughs) and i thought Okay, Nick started to see that um, even John Woo was into me because Simon West on Con Air went up to Nick and told him that this guy's brilliant, you've got to have him on every film, meaning me. And uh, Nick came up to me on Facebook and he's like, why does every director like (laughs) you? He says, why does everybody think you're so good? And I'm like, Nick, it's not that I'm so good, it's that everybody's so bad they make me look good. (laughs) And so he looked at and he's like, right, I got it. (laughs) And uh, because, you know, most of these guys are just schlubs. They're getting through the day and they're not really pulling their weight, Joey. Whereas I took it seriously like a real job. I dropped the eagle and I considered it a real paying job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted to be compensated for my time and my energy and my attention on these sets. And I understood who I was dealing with and who I was working with. But I treated it like a regular job, like an executive position. And it became that along with executive pay. So Face Off and John Wu and Arthur Anderson, the first AD, uh, were very generous. And they also spoke to Nick. About bumping me up and getting me onto contracts and helping me through things and then getting me parts on the movies and all that kind of stuff, so it just kind of flowed that way
1: what was uh some of your relationships like with other stand-ins like did someone like Travolta have a stand in in the way that Cage does that he uses for every movie, or are they generally different from film to film and is your sort of a one of a more special case where the actor will sort of take you on with him
2: uh it was a special case but uh, guys uh travolta did have a stand-in uh on that a traveling stand-in i'm gonna say he was a bit of a dick there were a lot of issues on the set he fucked up a lot of stuff he wasn't what anybody wanted to he was just in it to like basically sabotage things he got fired halfway through and then i trained uh one of the extras uh, in the jail scene to be a stand-in for Travolta. We kind of figured out that this guy is like kind of like the right weight and height and the piercing blue eyes and stuff. And then I took, my, took him under my wings, trained him, we got him his SAG card, and then he um, became Travolta stand-in. And to this day, he's been with him 20 straight wow. years. Wow. So, uh, and that's the truth. He was on Hairspray, I saw him here in Toronto, and uh, he's married with kids, the whole deal. But uh, I got him that job and he was a thankless fuck from that point on and he took That's it to awesome. his head and he became this demon. Oh. So I thought that was very weird and I thought, how is that even possible? I'd be very <laughs> thankful, but he wasn't. And, and I even trained the guy. And Travolta took him under his arm. They all thanked me at the time, but that was the end of it.
0: Well, that's two really good stories about his his stand-ins. That one made you look even better, and then you sort of kick-started this other guy. So yeah. who knew that you know one stand-in role could lead this to such good stories?
2: I didn't while I was on set. It was a <laughs> tough time. There was a lot of animosity on set between uh, Travolta's uh, stand-in and Travolta. There were mm-hmm. things I can't really talk about, but it became quite legal. And uh, a lot of issues that were, were disrupting the film flow. So he finally got fired, and there was a lot of back conversation after that, and uh, we had to replace uh, that guy immediately. And Travolta was the big ticket on that film, if you remember, guys. So Cage, again, was second built on that film behind Travolta. Uh, and Travolta was the superstar and kind of set the stage for Cage as well to conduct himself in a superstar manner.
1: Yeah, because it really wasn't until the third in what we were calling the Action Trilogy, as we were doing the podcast, Mm -hmm. it wasn't really until then that now coming out of Face Off, I feel like we have like this fully formed cage in a way where he has (laughs) done and will be able to do like anything, pretty much.
2: Yes. I I started to see that as well. I I realized I was tapping into something big. Uh, Being on contracts now, having the, you know, getting my own trailer, now they're putting up in hotels. Uh, Producers are kind of like saying, you know, how are you Mr. Curious today? And I'm thinking, oh my god, this is crazy. Is this how Hollywood works? So things started to change. They treated him like a king. We had our own, you know, chefs and trainers and, you know, hair, makeup, wardrobe PAs, everything started to get big, like Travolta. Travolta had a massive entourage, and we were starting to match that. And uh, it was the beginning of a big entourage for us. We were like Elvis Elvis' team at the time uh, and I was just a part of it and I was just like wow this is really happening you know with everything because you don't expect it remember I was the only guy coming from out of the country coming in from Toronto and everybody was American and they were all in the business and I didn't even live in LA
1: I feel like Elvis is a very so. apt sort of name there yeah, a lot because of <laughs> we find Cage and Elvis overlapped a lot during their career. Like, uh, he styled. Yeah, and himself.
2: married Elvis.
1: That, too? And yeah, he got Elvis. there, too, eventually.
0: From face-off, you go to City of Angels, which, when we were going through these, mm-hmm. watching them, you know, we were, we were doing three a week, so, like, <laughs> I don't want to compare what we did to what you did, but when we were, you know, watching three movies a week, recording three a week editing three a week I feel like we we sort of got what you went through when you were filming for 18 months straight on these movies but you go from Face Off to City of Angels and for us, it was just kind of like a oh, you go from face off, which is this amazing movie, this quiet, kind of weird, you know, angel human love story. Mm-hmm. But for you, I can imagine it was kind of like a nice break, because he's just sort of sitting on things throughout the movie. You don't have to run around like a madman, mm-hmm. you know, acting like you know, like an action star again.
2: I was so happy to be on that with that <laughs> damn fucking suede cape. I felt like Liberace. <laughs> it was fantastic. And they powder caked my face with makeup. If you see the photographs, I'm telling you, I was like like something of the 1920s, I was so tanned, guys, because we were outside <laughs> and I soak it up. I looked like the Puerto Rican special. It was so we had to put on makeup after makeup just to match Nick's gaunt, ghost-like face. That was the only bad part. My face was kept melting. I was like witchy, <laughs> kept melting and melting and melting. <laughs> and I kept reapplying makeup. So I traveled. I had a little pouch in my uh, in my front. I carried a, my travel uh, my travel makeup pack, and it was my powder puff. So I always used to say, you know, half powder puff will travel. So it was, I kept my own powder puff, I had my own marks with me, because there were so many long shots, and you know, camera guys had to come and go, so I just carried my own marks, I just marked myself, I had chalk marks, I had tape, and I'm like, it makes it easier, and I carried my own walkies, huh. just so I can communicate with the uh, AD team and the camera operators, as to where they wanted Kate cage to stand. Because he was standing in all these places as you saw, and you can have PAs and ADs, I mean, and not ADs, but PAs and camera kids all over the place, standing up in these places. So. I took it upon myself to kind of be my own PA and be my own marking focus puller. And that's kind of how we communicated with the walkie the entire film.
1: Now he's standing on a lot of high up places in that film. Do you have any There's fear not. of heights or <laughs> did that get to you? Or were there any issues with the heights in that film?
2: Well, some of it was done with green screen. So um, oh, okay. there was some studio shots on the green screen. There was the um, you know the shots in um, when he was on the freeway, uh, but we lowered the sign just so you know. So the real far high up sign were okay. done with stunt guys because it's actually a stunt thing so you know the sure. Marvel Man thing way up there when they did the long and wide shots yeah. were done with stunt guys but when they did the close-up ones the signs were actually brought back brought down to almost street level so it was, you know, you're one story up basically with a camera on the ground looking up. Oh, cool.
1: Okay, trick photography. But
2: there was the sign, there, there was a thing and I will say that Nick is afraid of heights. Not that I'm not, but I couldn't do this shot because it was a stunt thing. When they were up in that building in, uh, in LA, you know, the tall, tall tower in downtown Los Angeles, and it was him and Dennis, France. Uh, the actor. Oh yes, yes. Do you remember that scene? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he plays an angel. Uh, you Mr. Find NYPD, out, like an angel himself. that had fallen to heaven. Yes, yes. Well, that particular shot. Now, they could have done a green screen easily, and everybody bitched about it, including Nick Cage, and he had every right to bitch about it. They actually shot that scene outside, sixty stories high, in the middle wow. of the night, overlooking the city. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in, in that world, they could have CGI'd anything and put in the screen, and as they did in Family Man and so forth but the director really wanted that realism. And Nick fought it tooth and nail and wouldn't do it until the producers had the balls to go out and sit out there and be harnessed in, because those actors were harnessed in underneath their capes and their, their shirts and stuff. First of all, the stunt guys did it for safety. Once the stunt guys did it, the actors wouldn't do it. And they said, you guys are so balls to the walls that you do it. And they got the producers to do it. So the producers sat out there, harnessed 60 stories up in the middle of the night to do it. I never did that shot, but I was, you know, on on set, of course, up on that roof. And they did this entire dialogue all night long between Dennis France, you know, two shots and remote cameras and robotic cameras back and forth to do their, their split shots. I mean, they did it well, but once they got off, I mean, Nick was like, Furious First of all He's upset Secondly He's terrified Thirdly It's quite an experience But the guy never says no Because he's a thespian And I was I thought Why doesn't this guy Just pull his weight On this thing But he did it He says No I'm gonna do it Uh, They didn't really Have to do it guys Hmm. At all Wow it was it was kind of silly. It was fairly dangerous. If there was an earthquake or anything, kind of rocked, everybody right. would have gone under. It's crazy. It is, and it was unnecessary because they could have CGI. Because you can't really tell if it was a screen or if it was actually the city. That's I the mean, thing, right? That.
1: Yeah, because I wasn't because yeah. watching that movie, the the the, the uh, like the special effects are impeccable in that because they're just mm-hmm. sort of they're very light touches. I feel, and now that he, and when we get to Family Man, I don't. How is there any CGI in that movie? We'll get to there, but yeah, knowing <laughs> they have. Have the ability it's weird that they would pull that risk just for a, a single sequence but it's they did it
2: <laughs> they did it you know certain directors want that realism like Scorsese well this guy Brad Silberling the director who was from what I understood was a, the son of some ABC or NBC executive and ended up being a director through all that stuff who was married to uh, Amy uh, Brenneman uh, judging Amy yeah so she had a cameo as a as a as an angel in the San Francisco library, <laughs> oh. and I was next to her. I was the other cameo. No, I wasn't there. I was in the beach scene, and I, at the very end of the movie, I was also an angel. Yeah. But uh, so she had um, a cameo just for fun. They didn't have to do that, but they did it because it. I feel it was an ego trip. Yeah. And expensive. Yeah. To bring a whole crew up, you know, in the middle of the night up on a roof with all these people and safety guys and uh, stunt uh, guys and, you know, paramedics and. Fire trucks are waiting below. Ambulances are waiting below in case anything happens Legally, It's crazy. Studios are biting your teeth. You know, it's like, why are we doing this?
0: I have no idea. I'm glad that everybody made it out okay. I'm
2: glad I didn't do it.
0: So we go from there to another one of the biggest directors you worked with, I think, in Brian De Palma for Snake Eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think the most memorable thing about that movie, to mm-hmm. me anyway, I'm sure to most people, is that like 13 or 14 minute opening tracking shot. Yes. Now. Brilliant. Were you were you involved in like? Because I mean, that's all sort of. You're sort of following him around for a while, and you sort of go other places. But like, were are you in that shot anywhere? Or were, how how does that work with you and with him?
2: First of all, that shot was mended together, so it was not a consecutive 13 minute shot. There were very slight. There were, I think there were two breaks in between that, and they, they tied the film together. The rehearsals were actually 13 minutes long. The whole scene was done in, in one shot as a rehearsal, but when yeah, but you know, they would cut and go, but meaning the rehearsal was, was was consecutive, but the shooting stopped and went. That shot, I actually did that. It took a couple of days to set that up. and I went through all the motions and I did go through the dialogue. I was reading the dialogue. The dialogue was extensive, okay. as you know. I didn't memorize any of the dialogue. I don't know how to memorize it. Damn fucking Nick memorized it top to bottom. <laughs> I watched every rehearsal and I said this guy's going to fuck it up. And he didn't miss an exclamation mark, guys. Not a period, oh, not a mark, not a note. And I'm like how and I would just rub my eyes. I'm like there is no way. And he didn't miss his marks. So we took 2 days, two full days to go through um the ca- the camera guy's name was Larry something. He was a real New York giant type of guy. He was a well-known uh, steady cam operator at its time in the mid-90s and they brought him in from New York. This guy went backwards, up and down the stairs of the Montreal Forum. We shot it in Montreal at the uh, hockey forum. Up and down the stairs, as you see, it goes up and down these stairs and around the rink, and, and he is going backwards to sideways, to forwards, to following Nick, the amount of marks we put, I wish I would have videotaped that. The amount of marks we had put on the stairs and and on the forum of the platform, there must have been a hundred marks. One for, for camera and then all for Nick as well. And for Nick to hit all his marks in steadicams, in dialogue, in, in character, blew me away. I mean, I did it reading it and we would stop, go, stop, go, stop, go, do this. And then we had 7,000 extras, guys. Wow. And they would use those extras and they would move them with the cameras, so they would shoot. They'd have them on one wow. side of the form, then they'd cut, and they're like, "Okay, we're gonna move seven thousand extras guys <laughs> to the other side." So that would take an amount of time to to relaunch this shoot right. and move these people sitting there, and they'd shuffle them around so they don't know if they're the same people. How crazy was that? Surreal. It was a brilliant <laughs> shot. It was a. It was so well done, and uh, I didn't think it would work, but it it worked. To the credit of Nick and the steadicam operator.
0: No, yeah, that's one of the most memorable and maybe the coolest shots of like any movie he's ever been in. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the rest of that movie, but like that mm-hmm. opening is just like
1: amazing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, oh, I'm Rickass. <laughs> he's so intense. Yeah, <laughs> he's just.
1: And that later so on, fun. he's got a great moment too where he's just yeah the energy of in behind that performance is just explosive.
2: Yeah. I loved him as a corrupt cop. You know, he's just I thought it was kinda yes. funny. I wore that suit the whole time. Uh the stunt guy wore the suit. I have photographs of me in that suit with him. Uh it was a tough shoot. Uh, the best part of that was that it was all indoors. So it was <laughs> contained chaos guys so it wasn't we didn't deal with the weather <laughs> elements so that made me happy so i could i could manage myself indoors even though they were very long hours uh we only had one place to go was around the rink and it was in those areas so it was good and then we were on a montreal stage set after that for the uh hotel scenes and
0: what was it like working with the palma
2: i didn't really say much with him i worked with the cinematographer and uh, with the camera okay. operator all the time with uh, the director i barely said words to he was very into his actors. I did all the rehearsals, but I worked it with the cinematographer and the uh, and the camera operator. And the camera operators were with De Palma. These guys were in sync. So it, yeah. So it worked.
0: Then we had to
2: maybe the scariest movie Cage uh, ever made in eight millimeter. I don't know about the scariest. I thought it was a a flunky um, scary movie. It was a wannabe scary movie.
0: That okay. That's fair. Yeah. But we've got we've got some other big names on there. We've got Joaquin Phoenix before. I guess he wasn't really like a superstar yet. But we also have James Gandolfini on there too. Right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. We. Uh, it's so I mean, working on that. I think at the you know, hearing what happened at the end, uh, the studios changed the ratings. They wanted it to go a little more PG versus an NC. I think seventeen. It was really oh, for that storyline. So <laughs> yeah. Well, they cut out a lot of stuff because they didn't think it was commercial enough. So the real intense scenes, the real scary movies, the, the scary scenes, the sexual scenes, the real kinky scenes, a lot of them got cut out. It was left to your imagination. We shot the scenes. And so with that, we thought it's going to be kind of like a snuff porn film, but we didn't know they were going to cut them all out. So Schumacher was really upset about it because he ruined the film. The whole thing to him was, was to bring in the real people and now he really hired real fetish and bondage people in LA we shot in this dungeony kind of place in downtown LA and he brought in the real people people who were bondage experts people who pierced and sucked and fucked and used toys all over the place and we were in that environment but a lot of it was cut out so when you see it, it really wow. wasn't such a scary film like we thought it would be. But it was cool working with Galdafini. He was more like a gentle giant. He was more of a teddy bear kind of guy. More of a apologetic kind of fun dude on the set. More of a, like a Goomba. <laughs> It was oh, like, hey, like how are you doing? Hey, good, good, good. What, what are we going to do? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I got it. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, we're going. You know, it's fine.
0: When you were filming that, that was before The Sopranos. Or was it? Was The Sopranos on TV yet, or was it like right before they aired the first season?
2: I think it was before they aired. Uh, gotcha. I could be off, but I think it was before it was on.
0: Yeah, I looked up the, the air date of the pilot, and it was it was the beginning of 99. That movie came out in 99, but it, it, it seems like the, the timing would have been tight. You probably, I would have guessed that. Did you, do you remember if you filmed that movie in 99? 8 or 99
2: I think we did that in 98 because I think Bringing okay. Up the Dead was 99 but we were filming so it was in 98 yeah. it was after City of Angels and we filmed that in both New York and LA gotcha and both exteriors, exterior scenes were done in both cities interiors were all done in LA and then we had a weekend in Miami which I never really understood why we had that <laughs> weekend in Miami it was so bizarre I thought they just wanted to go to Miami for the weekend so let's just go to Miami and shoot something <laughs> uh, I couldn't figure out why it was in the movie guys other than we stayed in a nice hotel everybody went out for the entire weekend and then we flew back and i remember joe schumacher sitting next to me for of course at this point i'm flying first class kids and you know beautiful hotels and the marlin beach hotel nice. and blah, blah blah so i'm sitting in first class and next to me on the other side of the aisle was the director joe schumacher with his assistant and he looks over at me and he's just like hi i'm like hi how are you joe he says good what are you doing here because the cinematographer everybody <laughs> else was in the back i said i'm on the plane we're going to new york he's like but why are you in first class? I said, it's in my contract. <laughs> he's like, oh, I said, why are we in Miami? <laughs> and he's like, because we were shooting the scenes. Oh, well, we can afford first class. I'm, it's my SAG contract. I'm, I'm. This is where I'm sitting. Now, where's my steak meal? And, you know, pretty much leave me alone. I'm good. Kind of funny.
0: Did you ask him back, like, you know, in response to his questions, you asked him about Batman and Robin? No. <laughs> and about how that all no, went? No,
2: because I did hear him talk with Nick about Val Kilmer and how he wanted to kill Kilmer. You know, he hated Kilmer. And uh, oh, wow. I don't know why so much, but they had it out on set. And it's kind of known these days in, in Hollywood if you read up on stuff. But I I'd never said a word, but he... Said what he said to me. And it's he's overheard. He's not that whispery. Joel Schumacher is a little loud, kind of like I am. But he's big. He's like six foot eight, <laughs> six foot nine. He's like Big Bird. I was like, gay Big Bird. And he just flaps his wings and flaps his <laughs> mouth and he walks around and it's like <laughs> all day long, but hugs you with these big flapping arms. He hugs everybody on set all over the place. It's like this this guy's just like flapping away. So, but he's huge. He's like enormous with this really wrinkled up kind of face. <laughs> That actually
0: reminds mm-hmm. me, were you at all, it's not on your IMDb, but were you at all involved in uh, Superman Lives?
2: Well, I wasn't involved, but I do. I showed the the guys over here. I did go in for the fitting no way. Uh, at the Warner Brothers wardrobe. Uh, wardrobe. Oh, no way. I did. Way. Oh. And uh, I looked terrible in that suit, <laughs> in, uh, in the blue suit. Now, Nick is a ripped guy. He doesn't even need the muscles that are on that suit. I, on the other hand, was eating myself out of a job. Because, uh, you know, being some from a poor immigrant family, every there was food and I just kept eating and eating and eating sure. and I was tired and I was sick and I'm taking Tylenol and just I kept swelling up and I was eternally bloated and then I go in for this fitting that Nick is going to be doing Superman lives with you know Tim Burton's gonna be directing yeah. I'm like oh my god Nick is gonna be now I hadn't read the script I didn't know what the concept was I'm thinking what this is ridiculous there's no way he's going to be Superman this is going to fail so because <laughs> I'm thinking Clark Kent and I'm thinking this is not Clark Kent but it wasn't what it was supposed to be what I thought it was going to be so I go up to um the valley I, I go in for a fitting. There was this a wardrobe guy. He looked at me, very lispy, and he just, uh, and he's like, What are you doing here? I said, I'm here as a uh, Nick Standin' and I'm here to try the suit. He's like, You'll never get in it. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm like, well, isn't there like a size for me to wear this? No, it's one size. You have to be Nick's size. I'm like, well, I'm like, am I going to try to get in it? It's like, here's the suit. Go in the back there and try it on. Of course, I couldn't roll the suit up over my fat at this point. So I'm trying to like roll that up. I got it up to my thighs and then up to like my waist. And then that was it. So I asked him for help to roll it, literally roll it up and over. He's like, what did you do to get the fucking job as a standing? Jeez. <laughs> I was like, well, I didn't used to look like this. I said, I'm just starving these days and I'm I guess I'm overeating and I'm tired. So he was just he was very snippy. He uh wow. took a Polaroid of me. He gave me the Polaroid. He says, show it the hair makeup order when you get back to set and blah blah blah. And I did, I took it. For some reason, it ended up on on Nick's camper for a couple of years for some bizarre reason. <laughs> and I labeled it as Euro Man, like Euro Trash. Because <laughs> I had my slicked hair back in this 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 kind of whoppy look going on. And uh, and there I was with this suit that my tits were fucking hanging out of. So it was, <laughs> it was kind of funny. I still have the shot. It's a Polaroid, and uh, I just found it recently.
0: So which suit was that? Because there's a couple different ones. I don't know if you saw that documentary from a couple years I did. ago, but there's like so there's the there's the crazy suit. There's a couple crazy suits. There's the one that like they captured that like. Sort of awkward picture of him, but then there's the more traditional one. Were you in one of the more like experimental suits, or with the more sort of traditional red, blue, and yellow one?
2: Uh, no, I was in just the, the blue one. It was it was all blue. Gotcha. Okay. Just it was like boy in blue. That was it. Oh, no
1: symbol, no oh. cape, like
2: very no nice cape symbol, no there. nothing. I just kind of throw that out, but it was just it was just in blue, and then that was it. And you know, the film of course fell apart, and we just moved on. Yeah, that's that's a bummer, cause like that would have been. I mean, in, I in retrospect, movie, it feels but, you know, like it would have yes. been
1: one of his you know master pieces mm-hmm. and roles, what if his I agree in
2: retrospect. But at the time, you know, the students couldn't get around that either. They're thinking Nick Cage, Mr. Quirky, City of Angels, blah 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 is gonna do Superman. Like it was too much for studio executives to get around. Mm-hmm, and right. one thing led to the next and they're like, no, we're done. This is like not gonna happen because we're we're gonna we're gonna lose our shirt. What we really liked about the
0: documentary was like his take on Clark Kent because like the whole Clark Kent thing is like it's so weird that people don't know that he's Superman, but it's just sort of his like kind of nerdy whatever take on it like the way that they portrayed in the documentary were like oh like that that would work so yes that's another one where kind of like face-off like if that actually happened you would have had to mimic him doing two very different things sort of mild-mannered reporter and then you know superhero
2: yeah but he can pull it off and he could have pulled it off but uh, you know the the big boy said no, and that was basically the final answer.
0: But the next movie you actually did is with another massive director, bringing out the dead with Martin Scorsese. Yes. What was so that was that all shot in
2: New York City? Yes, Martin at the time is is a New York City director, as you know, and, and he just he sticks to New York. That's where he films. Kind of like Woody Allen did New York until now. He's now he's in London. He's he's the staple of New York. So it was all shot in New York. The interior scenes were done on a Brooklyn stage i can't remember what the stage was called but the rest of it was uh done uh in new york on the on the lower east side and uh midtown west that was a fucking nightmare because it was almost five months of night shoots a couple of days here and there but there was nights and in new york you can't sleep guys during the day as you know it's no matter how nice the hotel was and i lived like a king I was at the parker meridian hotel we all had suites. we lived like you know like liberaci we had fantastic accommodations but you couldn't sleep i mean you went to bed at eight o'clock in the morning and you're up by noon right because of maid service and noise and helicopters and ambulances it was it was tough so it was a, a draining film in that respect but Marty was hysterical. I had a great rapport with him and they call him Marty. I don't know why, but they call him Marty. They just think it's kind of a cute name. I guess it kind of suits him because he's a short little dude. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he's really funny and he's and you know, but you can't stand behind his monitor. so he is a thing that when he's coming on the set and his assistant, I think the girl's name was Alora at the time. Lovely blonde girl. She was on Channel One, and she would have her little microphone underneath her nose, and she's like, "Marty's coming in," and "said Marty's coming in," so "everybody clear, clear path, clear path, clear path." So no matter where you were, everybody's clearing like Moses. <laughs> for marty because he's a tiny little thing like five foot nothing walking through these big bulky you know blue collar boys and I, and he wants his set and he doesn't want anybody behind him so much so that he puts a camera or they have a camera on his monitor to see who's behind him because when he watches he needs his own he doesn't want to feel like people are crowding him so he will shut down the set and shut down the shooting if people are behind him so he says everybody get the fuck out of my way so we have to clear this kind of like 10 by 10 foot space so he can watch with his um, uh, producer and script supervisor and assistant and everybody else is just somewhere else. So it was really funny. And many times people didn't really understand that. And they just kind of crowd his space. And he would just like, he'd yell at them and tell everybody. And everybody's like, keep away, keep away, keep away. You know, we're, we're, he's he's watching the monitor. So I thought it was really funny. But that was his thing. He needed his space so he can visualize what he can take in his visual.
1: And that movie has Patricia Arquette in it as well, which at the time was married to Cage, correct? And
2: you, That is correct. And
1: you mentioned earlier that you had met at the acting class,
2: right? Yes. Yes, way back in like uh, '87 ish, '86 ish. I was a terrible actor. I had done a scene with her. It was from the play "Hello Out There." It's a famous uh, writer, forgot the guy's name. You know, she's a real bookworm, and and she was into the craft. And I was terrible. She wouldn't believe me on set. She says, "You do it again, do it again." She'd stop the scene. I'm like, "Uh, what do you mean?" She's like, "Keep doing it. You're not doing it right. You're you're out of yourself." <laughs> And I'm like, I didn't understand. Like, I didn't, I didn't know, guys. <laughs> oh, I was such an idiot. I was so embarrassed. We're on stage, and it was the Beverly Hills Playhouse. I was, I was frankly embarrassed, and I didn't really understand the system. I just thought I could right. get away with saying a few words, and, and I'm good. But I wasn't, she was really sweet. We were friends afterwards. But uh, no, she just wanted to let me know that I needed to, like, come up to Bad House. <laughs> And that I, yeah. I didn't know what I was doing, and I needed more practice.
1: Did she remember you from way back in the day at all? Or did you oh, have to jog 100%. her memory? Oh, 100%. Oh, okay, great. Oh, no, no, no. no. It was awesome. hugs
2: and kisses. I was completely cool. unforgettable like I am in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It was, it was... No, no, no. Completely. And Cage was thrilled that I knew her way back then. So it kind of oh, like an extra made bonus, him feel better. Yeah. that. Yeah, it's like, oh, my God. He took those classes. He was there. What a, what a small world. How cool is that? And she was lovely on set. He and her had a very good report. They were very quiet on set. It was a, it was a quiet yeah. movie because there were so many actors. There was so much yeah. choreography, guys, on that film and shooting at night in New York City, the permits in that shitty fucking hospital uh, on the Lower East Side on First Avenue. I forgot it was that famous hospital. It was tough because you had real ambulances. You had patients and extras and crackheads. And you know you had Mark Anthony who was in the yeah. you know, Mr. Salsa himself. Covered in blood. Yeah. And Ving
1: Rhames and...
0: Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that Cage spends a lot of time in that movie and that ambulance with the three different... His partners. Shift, shift, shift partners. Yeah. And Goodman and Ving Rhames and Tom Sizemore. Yeah. Did you spend time with them or did they all have stand-ins or like... How much time did you spend in that ambulance?
2: I spent a lot of time setting up on the, in the ambulances. You know, anything that was cage I stood in for. I drove it only once and I backed it up when I was in the hospital scene and I hit a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, you cannot drive this thing anymore. It was, you know, four o'clock in the morning. So the stunt guy did all the driving shots. Um, when they weren't carrying the ambulance, they, they, they carry them with the, with the uh, they, they rigged the ambulance. Like
1: on a, on a pull car or something.
2: Yes, yes. So when they weren't doing that and the ambulance was actually driving, which it was, uh, it was the stunt guy it was our guy um, we call him Stunt Eddie it was Eddie Yansik, and he was a brilliant driver and I mean the guy is a driver he's like a speedway driver so he was the perfect guy didn't bump into anything me I go one time I bump boom right into the backyard of things like like done yeah I stood in the entire time you know and yes the other guys had stand-ins as well Goodman and and um, Ving Rhames and everybody, just regular stand-ins New York uh, type guys
0: well I would imagine that if they didn't let you drive the ambulance you probably didn't do a whole lot of driving on the next movie on Gone in 60 Seconds did you? that's
2: correct I did drove <laughs> <laughs> you know when you drive from uh, five kilometers when you're like pulling into a stop and uh sure. driving around the corner slowly like creeping up against um, you know the building or or a, or a house in the middle of the night yes but to drive anything past 30 miles an hour no that was a good <laughs> guy and they had four Shelby cars on that film and yes, I did have my blonde bleached hair and oh. you know prior to that and bringing out the dead I did have those big baggy dark eyes and oh that's awesome yeah
0: did you spend did you get did you get to know on set did you get to know get to know Angelina Jolie
2: i did and i i got a personal gift from her uh one of those like oh, wow. swiss um blade knives you know with the multi-pack knife thing and it was sure. engraved and gone in 60 seconds she personally came up to me in the trailer when i was getting my hair done and uh thanked me for all the hard work because i did a lot of um photo double shots on that particular remember she wasn't a star at the time yeah so, she did um, like, right, that
0: was hackers like right before and tomb raider right yeah yeah
2: she was just up and coming cutesy wootsy hollywood kind of royalty actors because she is john voight's daughter you know people knew yeah. that but she wasn't she she wasn't a big name yet mm. um, so yeah so she did give me that gift and she was very sweet and very uh, gracious and I had photographs in good times with her
0: your comment about Angelina Jolie reminded me of something did did Nick ever talk about I, mean, I i I get the sense that he sort of sort of tried wanted to like put it down and put his own name on it but like did he ever talk about like his famous family you know what I mean because I know that I'm sure you got to know them sort of just by being around him that's correct that much but like we know from the very beginning I mean I think maybe in the best of times he's he might be Nick Coppola but like from then on like he's Nick Cage like he's not you know this famous last name so i mean you're you're a decade into his career but mm-hmm. like what kind of sense did you get from him in terms of like trying to set his own path as opposed to just sort of you know following in his family's footsteps
2: i think he was always setting his own path guys i'm not going to like pretend and say oh my god this isn't no he was in his own world he did his own thing he wanted to surpass even his own identity and his own family name. This guy was Nick Cage. I mean, he was Coppola by birth, but he was Nicholas Cage. He made a point of it, and uh, and he worked it, you know, for himself. Uh, he was proud of himself succeeding as Nick Cage. Yes, people yeah. knew there was a Coppola, but you know, you still had to perform, guys. You still had to be good. I mean, he did have a brother, Christian and Mark, and they were not fairly successful in in what they were doing. So even though they were Coppolas, it you know, it's it's the person that drives it. Sure. And he had that drive and he created his own identity as Nick Cage. I kind of see that. I'm kind of like a mini me version of that because I changed my name to Marco Kiris, because I wanted to break away from my immigrant, long Greek family, impoverished, not such a hot family growing up. And I made up my own identity and ran with it legally and just as he did. Yeah. So I kind of understood where he was coming from and and he succeeded. So and he doesn't talk about his name. He doesn't talk about the Coppola uh, dynasty. He never bragged about it. He never had conversations about this is my father's my Uncle, everybody knew who he was. We never had discussions about that, and he never really discussed it in a kind of a bragging way, unless it was kind of a matter-of-fact way, like, Oh yeah, my Uncle Francis just finished this film. We're kind of like, we may go to the screening of it, blah, blah, blah. But it was not like, well, it's my, you know, Francis Coppola. Right. He never did that, not for a split second, ever. In fact, he was the opposite. He kept everything very quiet.
0: That's great. That's I think it's probably the best way to handle it.
2: Yes. Yeah, he was very smart. I mean, he was smart in handling it. The correct way, because he knew that you could, you'd bash him in a second saying, oh, yeah, this guy thinks he's so fucking hot because he's a Coppola. But uh, he created his own identity. And so he thought he was hot as Cage. Coppola was a past life.
0: Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the next movie you did was one that really was a pleasant surprise <laughs> yeah. for us because the director of the next one sort of has like a, a kind of a bad rap in terms of the movies he makes. But Brett Ratner is the family man. We didn't know anything about. We're like, wow, we love this movie. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's it's a take on the, uh, it's a wonderful life, as you know. Yeah, um, yeah, The writers and the producers wanted a modern take of it. And I just, you know, I thought it was really funny that Brett Ratner was going to direct this. He was a brat and a rat, just like his a production company, which is, you know, Rat Productions or, you know, Rat Inc or something. But he was that person and worked it. But he was funny. I would say that we laughed on that set every day because of Jeremy Piven, who was hysterical yeah. the whole fucking time. Piven was like... <laughs> He was taken over as if it was a comedy show the entire time. Mm-hmm. Cage and him would laugh over everything. We couldn't get a shot done. <laughs> it was too funny. Because
1: that, that was years before Entourage, right? So, I mean, he hadn't really been huge. I think he had done, like, PCU maybe by that time. But mm-hmm. aside from that, he wasn't yeah. really much of a leading man.
2: No, and he was kind of asking for the jobs. Like, it was funny. He so says, like, I want to be in this movie. Would you put me in another movie? I need, I need, I mm-hmm. need to work. And I would hear him say that, and I'm thinking, What? He's on this movie. I just thought it was funny that he would say that, but he kind of meant it in a, in a funny way, but kind of in a serious way. But he and and uh, Rat were were buddies. There are so many stories, guys, I could tell you about that film. That again, that was shot in both um, New York and Los Angeles, in both on stage and in. Fantastic buildings in New York City, including the Seagram's Building, and you know that thing with the pool in it. We there was a there was a condo overlooking 42nd and Sixth. Uh, what's what's the famous park? Bryant Park. That's it, Bryant Park. And uh, there was a there was a two or three story apartment we were filming in there. That was his apartment, and there was an actual swimming pool on the first floor of the condo, and it was it was owned by some Arab sheik, and we were filming in there while he was in some other country. it was very strange it was such a bizarre place and we shot in New Jersey and all these places it was it was cool there's you know there's not enough time in the podcast to tell you about the stories on God in 60 Seconds and the fun stories and the crazy stories and then on this particular one but it would go on for hours I would say
1: can you give me one example of how like green screen or special effects were used in this film because you mentioned a little (laughs) earlier you kind of just dropped uh, the the name of this film when talking about that
2: the green screen was like when we were on stage and filming um, the boardroom the office of Nick Cage's character was shot in LA and they had these massive like 30-foot photographs stock photographs of New York City that were like on a roller Hmm. it would go like a building length wise all the way across the entire stage and you'd pull it like a curtain depending on where the shot was in the scene of New York City they would just move it for the shots of New York City whether it was Central Park, whether it was Times Square, whatever it may be, they had all that stock footage. And then there was a green screen As well behind that to shoot other scenes Mm -hmm. that they didn't have the photographs for on stage. Crazy.
1: Crazy. (laughs) You just, you know, (laughs) you watch a movie like that and you're like, ah, there's there's seamless. There's no special effects trickery going on here, but (laughs) sure enough. There were.
2: And I couldn't tell the difference when I saw the film as to what I was watching, if it was the real thing or not. But uh, most of it was fake in terms of that. They were real photographs and green screens.
0: So the next movie kind of brought you back to your heritage a bit, right? Because you did, it's Captain Corelli's And then you filmed that in Greece?
2: Yes. Yes. So we finished one film and then uh, flew out to Greece. That was a long flight.
0: Had you been to Greece before that? I had
2: uh, several times. Uh, Not several. A few times, I should say. Several is a lie. Gotcha. A few times. And, of course, I speak Greek because that was my first language. So I kind of acted Mm -hmm. as a translator to our team. Not that we didn't have uh, Greek-American translators, but I was kind of like the inner circle translator. So if somebody said something, I would tell them, no, this is what they really meant. Because I speak fluent Greek and it's just who I was. I just never thought I'd go to Greece to film a movie. And uh, it was on an island called Kefalonia, which was on the west side, close to Corfu. Uh, It was one of the greener islands. And I was on the plane going there with Penelope Cruz she was coming in from uh, Spain and I was we had a stop over in Milan and there she was opposite me and I'd never met her before and I'm like oh my god there's Penelope Cruz and she reached out and she says you work for Nick Cage and I looked at her I'm like how would you know that she says you look so much like <laughs> in a cage she says oh. are you his double I said yes she's like it's wow. very nice to meet you Penelope I'm like oh my god I, I was fainted she's like in 1d and I'm in 1a And there we were. Oh, man. So we both arrived. We each had our people kind of pick us up. We had our cars and we had to fly up from Athens and go off to the island on another plane. And then they drive us for an hour into these small little towns and these tiny little kind of like dormitory type of hotels because there is nowhere really to go. And it's tourist season and it's really tough in this small little town of nothingness. And half the town was the set, which was built from scratch. So all those buildings you see, oh. they were all fake. Oh, wow. None of that was real. It was built by the British crew. So they had a full-on British crew. They were there for four months, and they built all... And so behind it was just those sticks to hold up the buildings. Yeah. But all the buildings were fake, every last one of them, including the house that they were living in, meaning um, Penelope's wow. house and Nick's house and so forth. Everything was fake. They had to tear it all down after it was shot. Who would have knew?
1: Wow. Who knows? Yes. Yeah, yeah it's so crazy. convincing. It's insane.
2: Yeah, the art direction was great.
1: So that's the first
0: of two World War II movies you shoot back-to-back, you shoot back, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so where was Wind Windtalkers shot?
2: Wind Talkers was in Hawaii, and then um, outside of L.A., uh, this ranch okay. that they use for a lot of those kind of movies, it's about an hour and a half north of L.A. That was the when they kind of ran out of big movie stupid star money, they ended up going there. Um, but Hawaii was the... Uh, was the first destination but between that we shot a japanese commercial in la for pachinko that nick had done and they did several segments of this commercial um so we flew out from greece greece was a a very tough time to shoot i could go on and endless we had a lot of a few little tragedies (laughs) in greece and there were a lot of problems in greece oh man Uh, it was it was not what you see in the movie it was it was very difficult to be there as much as i wanted to explore greece i never had a day off to really see anything it was very tough and the hours were ridiculous wow. and it was 40 to 45 celsius every day apparently it was like the hottest summer ever oh geez so and wearing that wool uniform and driving and riding the tanks and doing the photo doubling it was it was a, a tough film to be on so between 100 and 110 degrees in the shade and there was no shade oh so oh boy it was you know i It was dark, dark, dark. They actually brought in a light Greek stand-in to stand in for me on half the movie because they they wanted somebody white like Nick, and I just soaked the sun up. It was really (laughs) embarrassing. It was really funny. Cinematographer, Academy Award-winning cinematographer, Mr. John Toll says, "I can't light you. You're darker. Than, <laughs> you're like you've been grazing, grazing the sun." John, I've been out for four hours. He's like, "Put some sunscreen." I've got bottles of it on. <laughs> says, "Get an umbrella." I'm like, "You, we're, we're killing the light." <laughs> so, I, no matter what I said, he says, "I can't light you." So they hired a local kid who was white, like Nick. And so he would stand in, and then I'd go through all the motions for the camera. So he did the stand-in work while I did the motion work. Is that funny? And
1: you had a stand-in for the stand-in. That's ins- that's
0: incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So after the brutal heat, then it must have been nice to go to Hawaii, sort of for like a not a vacation, but yeah. like a, a more sort of palatable climate. I would imagine
2: it was. Um, I, I didn't know anything about Hawaii. We all stayed in the uh, same hotel. The entire production stayed in the hotel, which unfortunately had cucarachas. It was the hotel that was the original Hawaii Five-O with Jack Lord. You know, but the original one of the '60s. So we stayed in that hotel with the same kind of views of the ocean. And the place where we were shooting at is where they're currently filming Jurassic Park Five. Oh. And all the Jurassic Park, somewhere they filmed King Kong and uh, so many other films of that nature. And it's in this uh, Koala Loa something ranch. I can't remember what it's called 100%. But So we were there for about three months. It was the same location. It was brutal brutal like the weather was fine but it was brutal it was about an hour's drive from our hotel
0: and that was your first returning director right because john woo did that one too
2: that's correct and uh and john woo was on it the entire time but it was all action i mean and and the close-ups were tough because you know by the time you get through the action shots Hey, it was it was it was a tough shoot. I think it was a challenge for Mr. Wu as well. It was a big flop. It was released at the wrong time, and so many things went wrong on that film. The budget was about 140 million dollars for its time, guys. Yeah. And it was an MGM. Uh, and a lot of people got fired. A lot of executives, from what i would read and heard on set, and uh, and then they they kind of like wrapped it all up and said everybody's going back to uh, L.A. And then they put us all up in L.A. and then we shot north of L.A.
0: And that's one of at least two movies, I think, that you worked on that had at least two versions mm-hmm. released. I think Con Air has multiple versions released, mm-hmm. and Windtalkers has multiple versions released, so yes. any insight as to what happened there, sort of in post-production?
2: What I heard, but I don't don't confirm, is because it was post-9-11, the oh. country was having a, a lot of issues. They were going to release it on a Veterans Day, right after 9-11, and that's when the head started to roll, uh, so to speak, right. because they wanted that sympathy factor for the American soldier, and they changed it for father's day the following summer Hmm. and they didn't think it was a father's day kind of film but somebody convinced them that this is the right thing to do and that's when it flopped because people were not into it by this time they're like fighting in iraq and there are these issues and people's minds were on something else they wanted something different and uh and it failed and then they changed the endings and it was a shame I went to both premieres, uh, which was kind of nice, the one in New York and the one in L.A. I was invited and flown out, if you can believe it. I didn't realize I had that much clown. kind of <laughs> crazy. <laughs> kind of a big-time thing. Because there's
0: a lot about that movie that we really like. so Yeah, uh, I, I quite enjoy that, the extended yeah.
1: director's cut and... Yeah, I I mean, watching it is exhausting. I mean, those are some of the bigger battle sequences, I feel, in, like, modern war movies. Like, it Mm -hmm. it covers a lot of war that you don't typically get portrayed in film either. So, yeah, like, logistically, it just looked like it must have been a nightmare with flamethrowers and explosions every two steps
2: it was a nightmare not so much for me but for the stunt guys and for there were hundreds of stunt guys and then they had real military guys from hawaii uh, like the real (sighs) base guys so they brought in all those guys and they brought in extras and then you know i was basically there for all the close-ups but i didn't do anything outside of all the close-ups the the nick dialogue things the rest of it was all the stunt guys uh you're not even allowed to be near the set you have to be like further away so i got to like lie on a rock which was i had to be there the whole (laughs) time in case you know the weather changes in hawaii and so they would cut from that explosion to a close-up scene so you'd have to be ready in uniform to come in and stand in for those shots
0: right yeah no that that makes sense it was
2: tough you know war film after war film and island after island remember greece is far away from hawaii here you're flying what 20 hours
1: yeah Wow. And he sort of had, like, a deformed ear in that show. Did you need to yes. also have that first? Do, do they do extensive makeup for stand-in work as well, or or they just no. sort of take that into consideration that <laughs> no. the actor's going to have a... Uh like a, an appliance on him
2: no the, the stunt guy did have all that stuff our stunt Eddie um, had the exact same ear of course because he did the stunt stuff okay. so he was uh, you know in uniform and, and ear and everything else with him me no I was kind of I was kind of like a diva at this point I was kind of over everything <laughs> and I was kind of prancing around with the helmet and you know I was like oh my god do i have to put the helmet on it's ruining my hair i don't know if i really want to do this i'm kind of tired where's my coffee so i started <laughs> you know, i was kind of over the scenes of too many macho guys i'm like i'm done with the macho-ness i'm i'm exhausted i need a real job this is not working for me anymore I'm, I'm tired so i was i was kind of like fading out on that film that was the beginning of the end i think for me you know it, it was a long ending it was a, it was a long goodbye but he... Mm-hmm. Sure. He'd, you know, they kept giving me money and more money and more <laughs> perks and more hotels. And I was like, oh, fuck. Okay, I'll do the next movie.
0: I mean, it might have been the beginning of the end, but, like, these next few movies you did are some of my favorites <laughs> that he was ever in that you ever did. I mean, like, the next one you do is Adaptation, which is one of my two or three favorite yeah. Cage movies. Same. Like, that's yeah. amazing. So with so that whole movie he plays two characters so did he have another stand in or is it just you doing both or how does that
2: work Um, that was very tricky there was an actor who um, was in full prosthetic hair makeup wardrobe as Nick and he was a New York theater actor I don't remember his name He was very good at what he did. And he played both characters as Nick did, but they always, of course, cut him out and they pasted the shots together as needed. So Nick acted off of this guy throughout the entire film when he needed to play one of the others. But Nick was on the ball all the time never forgot a line never forgot what character he was in he would switch back and forth and remember guys these when they set up a shot in the bedroom scene for example and, and both the actors are in there both Charlie and Donald the lighting setup is set up Nick had to change characters back and forth as did the other actor who played opposite him the entire time so it really became all about the lighting since they were set up they would change Nick into the next character and bring him in to do the lines and then they would adjust the camera slightly and then go back and forth for close up and two shots and over-the-shoulder shots, but in that same setup.
0: And that's a movie where his two characters are so physically different so again as you're standing in you're mimicking two sort of very different things he's doing right? Yes
2: and I had uh, like a wraparound kind of fake fat suit he had the real fat suit on a prosthetic huh. fat suit and I had like a fake fat suit but you know I had the hair I had the wig on for shots for certain small photo doubling shots and so forth but it was tough only because there were, you never had a minute off because everything was on Nick even if he yeah. wasn't on camera he was off camera but it was dialogue it was always Nick 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 so it was you were there but it was somewhat contained, except we went to the um, parking lot when we did the uh, you know Florida swamp stuff
1: did you get a chance to uh, talk with Meryl Streep is she overrated how is she she
2: She is so not overrated Donald Trump is overrated guys Um, (laughs) no she is so on the balls it's sick Uh, she again like Nick uh, didn't miss a beat she was the pro that you read about the pro that you hear about the jewel of the film and theater world in American cinema. She is everything you hear and when you're next to her the entire time you really see that. You keep thinking that it's not going to be that. There's got to be something wrong here. She was on it and fun and jovial and smart and she was the woman
1: and spike jones seems like kind of a character himself um did did you guys get along
2: and charlie kaufman too and I mean, charlie director yeah. and
1: writer are both
0: kind of crazy and they've worked together a couple of times so yeah. what was it like with both of them
2: uh charlie kaufman wasn't on the set much he only came and went he was one of those like cameo appearance kind of writers
0: that makes sense so
2: he was very quiet he was very geeky very short kind of looked like leo sayer the singer, if you remember who that is, you're maybe too young. You make me feel like dancing, gonna dance the night away. Anyway, okay. from the 1970s, that's what he looked like. Little short, curly hair, Jewish Oh, I just,
0: I just Googled him. I can totally see that. <laughs> <Not> Absolutely.
2: <laughs> he rarely came on set, but I think that he was in constant conversation with the director who was a friend of his. Sure. So the director and the cinematographer do film after film together. That's Lance Accord is a cinematographer. And those guys are the real freaking frack in real life in today's modern world. Those guys would finish each other's sentences, the entire movie. It was too funny to watch these two guys work. And at the beginning, nobody really paid attention to me. They didn't like me because there was a lot of issues with flying me out from Toronto. And they're like, it's a small budget film. You gotta cut your rates. We can't afford you, you're expensive. You know, we wanna hire a local. Would you mind not doing the film? And I said, no, I'm gonna do the film. You're gonna pay my rate and you're gonna fly me out the way I need it to be done. You know, we fought for about three weeks before I got my way and they had to go through the lawyers and the agents so there was a real bitterness with this diva stand-in coming on set on a low-budget film when the stand-in was making more money than the production manager and they they wow. the red the director and first ad and you know that whole first you know, above the line team really didn't pay any attention to me. They just thought, you know, move away. We're gonna not shoot you. We're gonna use somebody else and hopefully you get fired by Nick during this process. And I insisted on being on set for every rehearsal, every shot and every talent scout location that we were doing. I didn't care what it was in every setup. And they looked at me like, well, we don't need you. Well, I'm gonna be there. It's kind of ballsy on my end to kind of do that because I saw that they were sabotaging me. And I said, fuck them. I'm gonna prove to them that I'm worth my money. And at the end yeah. of the film, I got a personal hand, handwritten letter by Spike Jones and then a, a photographic booklet by him and hugs and kisses from the cinematographer, the ADs and Spike Jones saying we've never worked with anybody with such dedication as a stand-in oh, to an wow. actor ever. And so I won them over, but it took me a while to for them to come around because I was such a diva.
0: Yeah, you have to stand your ground. I said,
2: listen, I like my perks. I like my comfort. But on set, I'm the guy. So I'm going to do whatever you need. I'm not going to miss a beat, but I want, you know, my life.
0: That's awesome. I mean, I'm glad that you did because being like, that's sort of, in a lot of ways, one of his more unique movies. I'm glad you got to have that experience. Yeah,
2: I am too. And, you know, in retrospect, and him being nominated for, uh, you know, an Academy Award, and remember, Spike Jones's wife at the time was Sophia Coppola. Oh, so, I don't know. Oh. I, I don't know
0: if I knew that. Yeah, so Sophia
2: Coppola right. was on the set, coming and going, taking you know for photographic shots just for fun mm, sure. of the set to chronicle their their experience together. So she would, and you know, we would say hello because I've met her at Nick's house and I've seen her at other Cage Coppola events.
0: Domino herself.
2: Yes, and and she <laughs> yep. was lovely the whole time. And now, from what I understand, she's remarried now and lives in New York uh, with her new family and kids. But at the time she was married to Spike uh, Jones. And so, and obviously that's how Nick was on, you know, on this movie.
0: So now speaking of marriages, to sort of divert for a second, Mm -hmm. I think you were telling me last week on the phone that you went to at least one of Nick's weddings, right?
2: Yes, yes, I was at the Presley wedding. Which was Which
0: is probably the highest profile of the three, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: It was a very private wedding, <laughs> but it was a, seriously, it was it was Hollywood royalty, guys. I mean, yeah. why was I there? I'm not really sure. <laughs> but I was invited. I did have the invite. And so I showed up. But you couldn't show up with any cameras or phones or anything. Nothing was, uh, no recording devices for sense. everybody. It was, I think, at the Rosenthal Winery way up in Malibu. And everybody parked their car in some lot. And then they had these ushers in tuxedos, um, driving everybody in golf carts, uh, couples, (laughs) all the way up the mountains, uh, like in the middle of what you would think is nothing, up a dirt road to this estate where they had an outdoor wedding, a lavish 250-person outdoor wedding with... Nick's closest people and somehow I was there
0: and you were telling me that your your table like my jaw was dropping when you were saying who was at your table for this wedding
2: yeah well I mean who would have thought you know between uh, Tom Waits and his wife and uh, John Woo and his daughter and uh, Crispin Glover and his yeah Woman.
0: After we talked on the phone, I was trying to remember the mic, and I was just like, I can't remember who they were, but like, it's all like massive, amazing people <laughs> at this like
2: you know at this um, this crazy event. It was, and and it was crazy, and and you had. Because Lisa Marie was a Scientologist, she was born and bred in Scientology. Oh. And of course, uh, as a religion, like you would be Catholic or you'd be Jewish, it's part of like yep. how you grew up. It wasn't something you did at the age of 15. You grew up in that world. And so she grew up in that world and she brought her people who were Juliet Binoche and Kirstie Alley were there and a bunch of other people. People that I never thought I'd see at Nick Cage's wedding. Of course, her mother was there. It's kind of wild to see the Presleys and the Coppolas and the extended families <laughs> there and Jim Carrey was there and... You know Sam Rockwell, and it was it was you know there I was. It's all
0: sorts of royalty, yeah, like from two totally different worlds colliding
2: mm-hmm. it was you know i I, you know, I remember going home and flying back into, uh, you know back home to my parents at the time we're alive and we live in this very middle class wow. suburb in toronto kind of like the valley kind of like a sherman oaks normal kind of valley-ish kind of place and i remember telling them just like i was at the coppola and the presley wedding because remember my mom's <laughs> like the parents didn't know who anybody really was but they knew who the Presleys were—they're like Elvis's daughter. Yeah, yeah. I said, "This is Elvis's daughter, and me, this little greasy Greek, got to go <laughs> to the wedding." And they were mind-boggled. Yeah. They thought you made it, like you—you you became that big star. <laughs> so, although they never saw me on camera, they didn't really understand what I did for a living. Even though I told them who this guy was as actor, but they'd never seen him in film. So they who ni Nika Cage? who who no understand. So it was—it was, it was <laughs> kind of hard to tell them that I wasn't a prostitute or doing porn all those years this is after going to jail in la now i'm back doing these movies that they never heard of or seen <laughs> or an actor that they never heard of but i was making this money and buying houses. So they were kind of like weirded out by it.
0: Yeah, you've been in a dozen movies by this point, but it was finally that you got invited to a wedding. They're like,
2: oh, he made yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a Greek thing. <laughs>
0: no, yeah. this is
1: universal like that, I
2: suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was funny.
0: So speaking of Sam Rockwell, he was in the next movie. He was in Matchstick Men, another huge director. I don't remember that this guy directed because Matchstick Men is such like a
2: cool, good movie, but directed by Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. Uh, This film came in together very quickly. This was almost like a filler film for Ridley Scott as I understood it. Our prep time was next to nothing. I'm gonna say maximum, you know, production was up, up and running within two months. And we kind of like signed the contracts like weeks before we were going to do this film. And it was summertime, it was L.A., it was mainly in the Valley, which is really hot if you've been in L.A. And it was uh, pretty much the whole time in the Valley of L.A. And it was a very short two and a half kind of month film, in and out. And Ridley Scott, the pro that he is, doesn't change his mind. Like his shots are his shots and the days are the days and that's it. And you're in and you're out. There's no running over 13 days 15 days this guy was like we're done this is it we're done today at 6 p.m let's go so in that respect it was a a simple film because he was a no-nonsense director and something you don't expect from Mr. Gladiator himself he was not like the most smiliest guy on earth he was more of a matter of fact a serious director it's like let's shoot this let's shoot that here's the shot here Um, let's move the cameras there and uh, let's go and so with that it, it moved it was swift and he and Nick got along very well.
0: That's great. I mean, another guy that, you know, we we haven't done a podcast about him, but another guy that Mike and I both love is Sam Rockwell. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we love about him is that in basically every movie he's in, (laughs) for one reason or another, he starts to dance. So, I mean, Uh. do you have any memories of set? Was he he always... Does he dance... Out of character or just in character? In
2: character. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I'd, you know, I, I struck up a lot of conversations with him just because he's that kind of a friendly, fun guy, and it was kind of a sure. fun film. And him and Nick really got along well. They were like, you know, they, they were like Batman and Robin together.
0: Now that's a movie I want to see. Yeah, but, Batman and Robin with Cage and Rockwell. Who,
2: boy. Uh, that actually could be good. It could be really It could be, now that you come to think of it. But no, he wasn't a dancing guy offset, but he was a jokester. I mean, he, he threw in a few little jokes here, and he was a fun guy, kind of like Jeremy Piven. And they got along well, because it was a fun film. The best part about Rockwell, he's a theater actor as well. I'm not sure if it's a New Yorker, but he is a theater actor. Neither actor uh, would mess up. Not one line. There's a very lot of dialogue, as you knew. They didn't yeah. mess up. They didn't miss a mark. They just kept on going. It was everything was done right. If there was an issue, it was a technical issue, but it wasn't an acting issue, a position issue, or a forgetting my lines issue. It just it moved fast. Everything was fast paced. And really, Scott had no tolerance for mishaps. And these guys were on it. They were they knew exactly what they were doing everything was was pre-notioned
0: and you also have Alison Lohman, who was like something like 24 at the time playing like a 14 year old or something mm-hmm. so she's really good in that movie too yeah
2: she was she was adorable she was not into the business much I remember her telling me that uh, she didn't like the business in the LA thing and soon afterwards she had quit the business and moved to Vancouver with her boyfriend though she was uh, somewhere from the states her boyfriend was Canadian and then she she quit the business for a while I'm not sure if she's back or not. But the, she was just tired of the whole LA vibe. But she was she was wow. into the character and into the movie because it was really Scott. Um, but she wasn't yeah. into the whole LA vibe and that whole kind of craziness. Uh, she was like, let me just do my scene. Here the actors and let's just move on.
0: So now in that movie, Cage has, I think he has OCD or something Mm -hmm. that resembles OCD at least. So in terms of mimicking him, is that like a whole sort of mindset that you have to get into?
2: I didn't. I I didn't do it in that respect because I felt like I would be mocking him in a bad way. I don't think I'd pull it off well, guys. So I, you know, if he did things like open the door three different times, I would open the door three times, but not with the stupid facial expressions, because I would look ridiculous. So I would do it like close, 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 because they wanted to see how fast it would go on camera. So it became more technical on my side, working with the camera. And with him, it was character driven. That's kind of like how I worked it. When he had to like do things two or three times, I would do it more for the technical reasons sounds like a
1: very efficient set like, it <laughs> was very efficient of, yeah a lot but of th- other stories you'd
2: get ripped set. apart if you messed it up though mike um mm-hmm. so and we knew it like we were pros you hired camp cage for that reason everybody was a pro hair makeup wardrobe trailer guys that tr- the trucks were ready the the um trainer was ready the chef was there nobody said oh my god i'm like 40 minutes late i was out last night that didn't happen it was Cam cage paid it was a cage wage world and uh you showed up and you delivered and it's his name that becomes mud later on and we knew it we respected him he respected us therefore we received endless amount of gifts after every film all on birthdays christmas new years easter That's you name great. it gifts were sent to everybody's home uh, from rolex watches to gucci suits you i could go on forever the guy just gave and gave and gave, but he appreciated. Not only he, did he financially take care of us, but you, know, you expected Camp Cage to deliver, and he delivered. And, yeah. and so with Ridley Scott, he expects you to deliver and we did, everybody.
1: Are you close with the rest of Camp Cage, the, the hair and the wardrobe, makeup, every all those other people? Did you guys kind of end up becoming like a small family to a degree, or did you mostly just see each other in passing?
2: Because we worked so much together, and you know, a couple of people came and went, you know, different hair, different <laughs> makeup people at times came and went. Uh, we bonded while we were on the set. We would go out for drinks or dinner on the weekends, wherever we were in these locations, because everybody was from somebody else. But uh, once you're done filming and you're off for like two, Three months, we didn't see each other. We knew that we were going to regroup on the next film, but we didn't, yep. uh, you know, we'd send an email. We would call each other up once in a while. How are you doing? How's the wife? How's your life? Blah, blah, blah but it wasn't like an everyday thing cuz we you know you'd spend 12 14 hours a day for months at a time
0: and enough is enough sometimes yeah you need
2: to move on everybody had friends and lovers and family that they wanted to spend time with and it's like oh my god I got to talk to that marco guy again so it's a, <laughs> it's so when you spoke you you had a few little words to say what's going on what are we doing how's everything going and then you kind of like Climb up. It
1: was cordial. Yes.
2: No, but everybody was nice. But we just didn't want to spend the rest of our lives, you know, dwelling <laughs> right. on one another. We're like, we really need to move on. We have other things going on.
1: No. Yeah. Even even Joey and I don't talk every day. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's funny. So
0: the next movie you went to, you went back to Camp Bruckheimer, if we're using a camp analogy, back to maybe his Mm -hmm. biggest movie of all time, or one of them for sure, in National Treasure.
2: Yes. That was a...
0: That's a a Disney movie, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a whole different ball of wax. Yeah,
2: that was a real PG Disney movie catering to a younger market, as you guys know. Cage loved to do that film, and he and the director were very friendly. They were buddy-buddies. They both went to high school, Beverly Hills High School, together. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are the same age turtletop is married with kids you know typical family man but a very successful writer producer and director from la born and bred there so they had a lot of things in common they got along very well again nick was on his mark on the dot the whole time that film was shot over five states guys so Whoa. we had a traveling massive entourage all the above the line kind of people you know key grips electrics you know cinematographers transport captain guys and a bunch of other people and all these cast members and their posses and entourages and stuff <laughs> we were like from Utah to Philadelphia to PA to DC to New York to we were all over the place you know between planes and trains and automobiles we had cars and hotels everywhere and it was insane I don't even remember how big the budget was it was over a hundred million I can't remember how far past that it was five states in five five over five months it was exhausting you know (laughs) nights and days 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 and nights it was it was we were rock stars and I'm thinking what am I doing in my life at this point I I'm really overeating myself you know I'm like John Woo had said it before to me I remember him yelling at me on this film of Windtalkers he's like oh Marco you no look like a Nikkei no more I'm like what <laughs> oh, no. he's like you eat too much you should have worked for a John Tovolta. you get it so fat I was like, <laughs> oh my god I'm eating myself at a job even John Woo noticed it came on that set as well on, on National Treasure I saw myself ballooning out and I realized I'm just tired you know, five oh, yeah. st- I didn't have a life, it you know, I was sense. a single guy, it was the kind of like losing my youth, you know, hitting over 40, you're getting tired, you're realizing you've got little time left to be on a, on a single market, and there you are on these, these national treasures, you're all over the place. And, yeah. and the only thing you could and do you have, is go to sleep.
0: You have the rare distinction of acting with Sean Bean in one movie where he doesn't die, <laughs> which is surprising.
2: Just <laughs> right. But he did almost fall down the stairs when we were on the, oh, uh, no. you know, the, the Philadelphia Bell. Uh, yeah. We actually filmed in that Bell Tower, and they had said that there were only 300 people ever in all those hundreds of years that have ever gone up there, and it was us. And I was oh, wow. the only guy allowed to be up there who was not an actor. Uh, because I worked for Nick Cage and uh, it was that's and so he almost cool. slipped and fell down the stairs. So that was go up there
1: very much. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Sean Bean was great. Those guys were a blast. Uh, that whole bad guy troupe, they were hysterical. Like off camera, it was nothing but jokes. It was the opposite of their character. Everything was so not serious with these guys. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. And they weren't like macho for macho sakes like Americans were, they're all these Brits. So their idea of macho was like just kind of looking macho, but they were they were all metro males. So, sure. <laughs> they just have that, you know, Brits are just not not big macho males. Sean Carney can be tough, but he's not, you don't see him as that scary type. They all have that, you know. It's, it's kind of like Vinnie Jones, who it was a tough guy in 60 <laughs> seconds, but he was a fucking puppy dog. The guy was like breaking out and laughing all day long. He couldn't remember a line to save his life, but he was hysterical. So these guys are just like fun guys off the set.
0: Did you get a chance to spend time with Diane Kruger on set there?
2: I did, and I did. Uh, I did do a couple of photo double shots as Nick with her, and only because Nick was off doing publicity. and Not that he would leave her because she was the lead actress. Right. Something's happened, and you have to shoot E. T. or Access Hollywood or this or that. and Then they only have like that night to shoot that close up. Right, right, and right. And so Marco puts on the tuxedo and does the shots, and she was not happy oh. about it. She was kind of pissed off. So I did do. Do several of those scenes for different actors because the locations were so tough and so many logistics were coming into play at that time. Some actors, like the Brit guys didn't care, they were all good with it. You know, with the lead actor, she was not thrilled with it. And I see her point because this was her breakthrough and she's like, why am I doing the scene my close-up with this actor?
0: Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, it's Hollywood and it's not like he's doing it to because he hasn't respect her. It's, yes. like you said, like there's one night to do the one thing, so I get it, but you know, That's exactly she what holds happened. no grudges against you.
2: Oh, no, she doesn't. At the end of it, she knows that it's a production um, situation. And, and remember, she was not Hollywood. She was German, and uh, right. she had just come into the Hollywood thing. Nick is Hollywood. And I became kind of like fake Hollywood. So I was like a mini-me version of Nick. So I just kind of, you know, I worked it, but I was very nice and very polite about it, and I apologize that Nick wasn't there, but he was off doing a shoot and blah, 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 and that was the only time they could do it. Uh, whether she understood or not, it's you know, it is what it is and that's how the film business runs.
0: So your next movie is your your next to last one's Lord of War, and this is a movie that Cage's son Weston was in, right?
2: That is good and correct, yes.
0: So now did you know him like was he around sets before in movies where he wasn't inks he's been in I think a couple of Cage's movies. Was he around sets just hanging around or was he just there when he was actually in the movie
2: uh no he visited a few times it depends on the location uh with his mother christina fulton they had flown around at different times when nick was usually out of town he came on a couple of la sets i saw the kid grow up basically over time he was more visible on the out of town locations, meaning out of LA locations, because that's when the mother would take, bring him, especially during summer vacation. When the kid is in, you know, when the kids in school through the year, he doesn't fly out. But during the summer vacation times, we were for example, we were on Snake Eyes in the summertime in Montreal, she was there and brought the suck. Gotcha. So yes, he was around. Uh, during those times, Nick insisted on uh, on him, so he would fly them out and with bodyguards and all that protective stuff that Hollywood royalty has.
0: So that seems like a movie that kind of filmed all over the place. I mean,
2: how many places <laughs> did you go personally for that for that shoot? Oh my God, that was the ki- that was the end of it for me. So that <laughs> well, it, the end of it was the Weatherman. I quit on the Weatherman sure. just part of that. But uh, Lord of War, I was like, I was done. I couldn't I couldn't breathe anymore. So Lord of War was shot on three continents, guys. Three Jesus. continents. Oh, you're on a world tour now. And I'm thinking, thinking <laughs> oh my God, I'm thinking, what am I doing? Here I am, the standing, <laughs> flying around first class all around the world. So, uh, yes, we were in Prague with those tanks, and that's where Cage's son was in, in those mm-hmm. scenes in Prague. And we were in, of yep. course, South Africa in Cape Town and Namibia shooting most of it. And for all those African nations, we were basically in those two places. And then the New York scenes were shot in New York, except for the interior shots of the apartment, which were shot on stage, Full of asbestos and smoke, sick stuff that you would never imagine in Cape Town. It was those underdeveloped um, stages at the time. And everybody was sick. We were like in and out of doctors the whole time while we were there. So those were the interior New York scene shots, and the exterior were actually in New York City.
0: You can sort of get the sense that those are like real places, but as, you know, a stand-in flying or, you know, even as just part of the crew flying all over the world, you wonder, like... Can't they just do all this somewhere in LA? <laughs> they could.
2: They they actually could. But they, you know, as realistic as they could get in terms of landscaping. Sure. And at the time, the rand, the South African currency, was so low that they used, of course, the, um, local crews. So there were only about, let's say, two dozen people they had to fly out, and uh, so it didn't cost them much versus having an entire crew and and set designs out of LA so they used local South African crews so it was kind of like the Mexican dollar
0: cheaper to fly to South Africa than film in LA that's that's amazing it is
2: amazing <laughs> and that's how it was <laughs> now at the same time While I was on that set, I started noticing all these producers and they were all foreign producers. When I realized it, this particular film had more producing credits than any other film I'd ever worked on in my entire life. It was a co-production of co-co-co-co-co-co-co. You know, French, British, African, uh, Prague, I mean, all these places and all these producers were representing different countries in different uh, studios. It was insane. I couldn't believe it. Like right from Australia where the um, director Andrew Nichol was from. And his son played the baby as Nick Cage's kid in it. his real son, and his wife was a model, some pretty blonde girl. So, you know, you're on that set, and so you kind of hear all the stories, you kind of know what's going on because you're on there. You rarely forget them because they're just so bizarre. Yeah, there were so many producers on that, I mean, I don't even know how it even made money, but it was a tough shot, especially that opening sequence with the bullets and (laughs) that uh, that crane shot that goes up from, you know, all across the bullets, and a lot of that was um, special effects.
0: It's a super cool opening. It's, It's very, very stylish. Yes. Sort of a weird question. It's not about Cage at all, but in that movie also Was Ethan Hawke, right? Yeah. And so this was in the midst, I think, sort of in the beginning to the middle of when he's filming Boyhood over 12 years. Did he ever mention, like, offhand, like, hey, you know, I've been filming this movie for four years with Richard (laughs) Linklater, like, it's not going to come out for another eight years. But, like, I mean, not only did you work with both stars of that movie and him and Patricia Arquette. Mm-hmm. You worked with him in the midst of him filming a couple weeks a year for 12 years. Did you ever mention that or is that just like a weird like keep to himself sort of thing?
2: I don't know if he kept to himself. I'm going to say that he probably spoke to Cage about it but I wasn't sure. a part of that. Uh, I was just trying to get through the day. It was very tough being out there so I didn't hear anything about that and if I did I probably forgot. My concentration was like how am I going to get through the next day on this <laughs> film set and I'm sick as a dog and it's dangerous and we have bodyguards and blah blah blah. That makes total sense. Yeah, we're filming in these shanty towns. They couldn't film at night, so they used different filters because there was there were killings, and we didn't have enough bodyguards what? to protect us, so they had to, wow. like, change the filters and film during the day, and it was like, so my headspace was more on, like, how am I going to get through the day and not die? No, yeah. And why am I still working for Cage after 10 years, and why don't <laughs> I have my own life? So that was more <laughs> what I was thinking of versus Ethan Hawke's new kind of cool trilogy film. <laughs> <laughs> it just,
0: like, it's just such a weird, like, I love Boyhood. It's just such a weird filming thing that, like, it fascinates me. It wasn't news that was coming up, but then you watch all these movies, like a decade of movies with the two of them, mm-hmm. and all, all throughout they're shooting these other things. Like, it just, it blows my mind. So I was just wondering, as someone who, you know, knows Ethan Hawke, if that ever yeah, sort sure. of came up. But I imagine, you know, Thinking of your personal safety and thinking of like, yeah. where's the next bed I'm gonna sleep in? Like, those are gonna be more important than hey, what are you working on in your spare time, Ethan?
2: Yeah, <laughs> no, it was more like is a tarantula gonna come down through the window today in this particular hotel that we're in, or is there gonna Whoa. be a snake coming up through the you know, through through the wow. river? That was more what I was thinking of. And why can I eat anything that doesn't taste gamey? So I would ended up eating canned foods <laughs> and <laughs> oh, pasta because everything was kind of sickly to eat. I never oh, ate God. on set, it was horrible. Stuff they there were never any bathrooms, there was no soap, there was no water, and it was like you're in the middle of nothing. And I thought, I'm gonna get sick. And as it turned out, I did get very sick. But uh, so that was on my mind more than how's Ethan Hawk's career doing? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's totally understandable. Yeah.
2: And that ship we were on, guys, was the most disgusting, filthy piece of fucking shit I had ever been on <laughs> in my entire life. I almost puked, half the people puked on that thing. It was disgusting. Rinse. It was an abandoned ship that oh, was not in use. and it was a cargo ship full of roaches and rats, the entire oh, fucking God. ship. There were no bathrooms on that, on that ship, none. If they were, they were Ugh. not functioning. So I just peed on the deck the whole time so you'd go in in the morning and you'd leave by the (laughs) end of the day and it was you know the ship was way out there then they'd have to like take an hour to come back to shore because it's you know supposed to be the middle of nowhere then you had a fucking helicopter shot that uh filmed with Nick you know standing on top of the uh the bow of the boat and uh and that took hours to film that thing because they had a helicam and guess who's standing there like an asshole for hours on end burning (laughs) in the fucking sun the African sun to boot I love Ethan Hawke but I wasn't interested (laughs) Oh, man, it's a horror show. Oh, I know. You yeah, have to live it to believe it. People think there's glamour. I was used to tell Joe Koshy, who was our our uh, hair guy at the time. He's deceased at the, now. But uh, and I said, Joe, where the fuck is the glamour of this business? I thought maybe, you know, things are kind of cool and fun. I'm like, what, where the fuck is the glamour in the, in the, at the beginning of the career? And he says, Marco, you want to know what the glamour is? I'm like, where? He's like, look in your right pocket. I'm like, I can't see it. <laughs> Fill it up. I'm like, what? He says, and he takes a roll of money and he shoves it in my pocket. That's the fucking glamour, kid. It's in your fucking <laughs> pocket. It's the cash. Take the fucking money and run. Oh, man. And I realize it's all about the money. For me, anyway. And, and him. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, you know, you build up a nest egg through all that torture.
0: Well, the last movie you did with Cage, not the last movie you did, but the last movie you did with Cage was The Weatherman, which Mike and I just rewatched mm-hmm. a month or two ago. Oh. And like... It's a very strange, depressing movie. (laughs) Yes.
2: And just to set the record, we shot The Weatherman prior to Lord of War. It was released Oh, okay. So Lord
0: of War was really the last straw.
2: Yeah. Lord of War broke everybody's back, including Nick Cage's. So we were all done with that. And he was done with us. There were a lot of incidents that happened while we were in Africa. I think the stress of being that far away. His new marriage, which he'd just gotten married months before to uh, Alice Kim. And our lives being kind of like... You know, three continents and all of the everybody was done. We, everybody was like barely crawling back on the plane to get home. I can imagine. And prior to that, the weather man with rabinski directing was also yeah. tough, and and it's not that he was tough; it's that the elements were tough in Chicago because Nick's yeah, character, cold. the cold in Chicago was brutal. The wind chills are just like you see in the movies. You know, it's it's no different than Toronto. But the problem was that Nick's character was the weatherman, always wearing a fucking trench coat. Well, it's right. minus seventeen, guys, and he doesn't wear. Glasses. Gloves and guess who's doing all the fucking shots with that bow and arrow i have oh. endless still frames of me standing there for hours with those bow and arrows and my fingers turned blue i was in and out of the hospital i'm exhausted seeing doctors oh, in man, chicago man. but they didn't care they wanted their shot done and that was it and the first ad was brutal she was a fuck brutal brit is what i call her <laughs> so how Rule. much
0: food how much food did you get hit with on that shoot? Cause a lot he gets pelted with <laughs> yes. a lot on screen, so I imagine that like every angle that they needed to the capture of the people throwing out the car mm-hmm. if there was a chance that you were in the shot, you were probably getting hit by milkshakes and chicken nuggets and all that stuff
2: (laughs) what happened was i i was the crash test dummy in that so i i was (laughs) hit on everything with everything but it was always the director doing it so it was very consensual we had discussions Hmm. ahead of time and gore says you're going to be the guy that i'm going to throw everything on and you're going to keep changing and because he wanted to get his angles right and he wanted to get his arm in the right Position to throw it. So when Nick stood in that mark, it was because you had a one-shot deal, guys. Yeah, because they need to change the principal actor's wardrobe, and that takes three hours to clean him up and redo his hair throw a milkshake at this guy and you shut production down for three hours so i mean think about that and it costs you know probably three hundred thousand dollars for those three hours and it's freezing cold and then the the climate changes it goes from sunny to cloudy so you don't have any continuity so it was most of those shots were like a one-shot deal unless it was a chicken mcnugget and then it didn't really matter they can reshoot them right but the shakes and so i was the guinea pig on them they asked me nick was really concerned with my welfare i was like i'm fine with that i wasn't fine with the cold but i was fine with the milkshakes and i didn't really care all i cared about was standing out in the cold and he was actually quite sincere about all that stuff but uh, so i was the crash test dummy on that and i was okay with it i have a lot of photographs of of myself that way and it's it's kind of funny but you know I can it was a humiliating film in character meaning cage's character so i felt like i was playing that character and i was okay i thought if cage can humiliate himself in that character i'm just a fucking idiot standing why can't i do it <laughs> You know, like, who am I? I'm getting paid to stay in a beautiful condo on the Gold Coast and give me an SUV. And I'm making a lot of money. I'm eating steak and lobster every day. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I would do it too. So that was
0: another massive, massive actor you worked with or got the chance to, you know, interact with him. Michael Caine, right? Yes,
2: yes. I didn't interact much with him. He didn't interact much with anybody except for the director. A little bit with Cage. They weren't much of interaction but uh he was more in with the director because
0: he's he's so likable and so much he does and in that movie he's just like the biggest asshole he's just (laughs) he's just insufferable i mean like was he I, i hope i mean i hope he's not like a method actor he was just miserable to everybody on set i hope that out of character he was nice and kind to people
2: he was cordial he was kind but he didn't extend himself he was into okay. his shots. Uh, you remember, he's an older guy. This guy's been around for a thousand years, Mr. Sleuth and all. And he's doing this small little film, and he and he did his part, and he left the set. And that was it. It's like, I'm going back to my and I'm done. He's not going to hang out wherever it is. It's like, hello, here we are. Shoot the shot. Let's go.
0: Sometimes, I guess that's all you can ask for. And I mean, if he does his job, just like you, like, show up, do your work, do what's asked of you. And if you do the right thing, like... People are going to have good stories to tell about you. Yeah,
2: I'm a, I'm a, I was a, I was a little more of a clown. This guy's a real, you know, he's a method actor. Sure. He's a real smart man. And he's an older man, and he's seen everything and done everything. So, mm-hmm. you know, Chicago, winter, let's shoot it. Let's move on. Let's go somewhere warm, have some tea, and then shoot the next scene.
0: Very nice. Yeah,
2: that's kind of like where he was at. And Gore was all over the place. He was like him and his cigars. He was an. And he was like <laughs> a little puppy dog. He was a very bouncy guy but the controller of the set was the first ad benita allen wow she was a rough rough chick she was the daughter i heard of the producer former well late producer erwin allen who produced and directed the poseidon adventure in 1971 okay so she was the daughter and she was a tough tough cookie that woman so she kind of controlled the set she was like a bulldog huh Wow. Of course, like, well, maybe we should suit these shots and use it. No, we don't have time. We got to move on. Okay, sure. No problem. But let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah, where we're, this is like not that kind of a movie. It's not pirates. Let's move on. Next shot.
0: This is the only movie he did in the midst of that. Pirates. Probably decade of his life that he hit with pirates, right? Yes. So, yeah.
2: Again, it felt like a filler film to me, guys. Just like the Scorsese mm-hmm. one. Just like the um, Ridley Scott. These are top-notch directors, but they were all the softer, talky, you know, storytelling kind of movies. Right. And they were kind of like filler movies. And Nick fit that filler fill for some reason.
1: Yeah, they were almost like plays to a degree, it felt like. They were yeah. like very long monologues and pages and pages of mm-hmm. dialogue and very sparse sort of locations, you know, offices, bedrooms, very yes. small spaces.
2: And they were very crafty with their spaces, you know, minimal crew in different places. And I mean, they they managed it well. Unfortunately, I was there for Everything because Nick was every fucking shot. I'm like, oh my god, please, you know, cut him out of the scene. <laughs>
1: Are you asking Nick? You know, please, you know, maybe take a break
2: again for another six months, seven. I months? went up to him once and I said, Nick, can you please do Kramer versus Kramer the remake, or we sit in one <laughs> room, or hotel suite? Why don't we do that? Just sit in a hotel room and talk, and I'll and I'll you know and, and I'll reduce my salary. He just Do like to make a couple crazy. cameos. <laughs> yeah. Like fuck you're the stand-in. just fucking stand in. Cuz that's
0: the other thing that in all these movies and really all the movies he's ever done like he's the lead. Yes. So he's not only is he doing crazy stuff but like he's in every scene which means that you're also in every scene, which I was I was mentioning to you on the phone that the other actor that we're finishing up now is Keanu Reeves. Mm -hmm. And like recently, he's been sort of wisely like picking like smaller roles, sort of like fourth or fifth build, just have like a a couple really great scenes. But Nick throughout his entire career has always been top build, really. So it's exhausting for him. It's exhausting for you. It's it's non-stop it's, it great is, uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> it's great for us yeah it's great for us i mean it's exhausting for hair makeup wardrobe and everybody else i mean we we like the work we like to the money we like our pensions you know it was it was a job it was a career and you had to understand that it it was what it was and this guy was the top build actor at the time and i was the only representative on camera and off camera on set mimicking his moves for 20 films and and I took it as a very serious occupation and he looked at me in a very serious way that I performed the way he wanted me to perform which was respectable respecting the crew respecting the time respecting not going out and getting drunk respecting showing up at 5 a.m when crew call was uh, whether you slept or not and that you knew what you were doing all day I never let him down during that time and I didn't let my down, myself down. I mean, he's he's written several times and saying, you know, thank you for your hard work, your dedication is, you know, unparalleled, and blah blah blah. And it, and it truly was. I mean, I I worked and I knew that I was the only guy to represent him. If I was sick and fell apart on National Treasure. Who are they going to get in Utah? Right. Mm-hmm. So, are
0: you still in touch with him to this day? I mean, even like just sporadically?
2: No. It was a, there was a falling out in Africa. It was a semi-justified falling out, and I'm good with it. I'm uh, I'm not angry about it at all. I don't think he is anymore. I think he had his his say, and it was over. Well,
0: I'm glad but- that you're able to look back at your career with such you know positive fun fond memories of everything
2: listen if you have to stand in for an actor uh joey any actor i would choose cage over travolta and travolta was great there are very few people there's tom hanks and a couple of others there are very few people who dedicate themselves to their personal entourage to this level in terms of gift giving perks money all kinds of compensation and uh, trust them. And and trust was a big deal for Nick Cage. And so I appreciate that. So for me to sit here and say that, oh, I thought he was a douchebag. How can you, <laughs> how can you be a douchebag when you're with him for five straight months and you're working with him and you see yeah. what he's doing and you're in there together and you're discovering different characters and different things and you're meeting all these people. Yeah, yeah the job was brutal and the locations were brutal, but he wasn't brutal. You know, you have to right. separate that. So if you want to be the jerk and say, oh, and he's brutal, there was nothing brutal about him. The guy was like on the ball. The crew sometimes not so much you know the locations usually never but him like what else can you ask for
0: exactly i mean that's that's sort of the motto of our whole podcast Mm -hmm. like what else can you ask for just he's everything that we wanted i'm glad that he was able to share his, his glory or share his fame and his fortunes and everything with you. And I'm just I'm really just at, at the end of the day, just super, super happy that you were so generous with your time and were able to tell us all these stories. I really, really, truly appreciate it. I know Mike does too. Oh yeah, it's this is like
1: one of the most enlightening nights of my life. <laughs> I mean, this is just I been... think you have
2: to split this thing up, guys, in like two podcasts, because we've been here like forty-seven hours. I mean, like, I'm <laughs> hot. Poor Blake is like passing out. This kid has been working all day. I dragged this fucking skinny white ass up here here uh in the rain and uh I just <laughs> now i feel guilty i'm gonna open up a bottle of wine and let him have the whole bottle so before we let you go can you tell us and can you tell our listeners about your podcast yes well first of all as you know it's a uh, face 20th anniversary yes uh which is today so we're we're right. posting stuff on my uh, website and uh, not on the website. So on the public page, on my private page, and on Instagram, we're reissuing um, the podcast I had with the co-writer Michael Kaliri of Face Off, who did my podcast. I've just started this. It's it's on iTunes. It's Babble BS and Beyond, which is Babble Bullshit and Beyond. And so we've we are now on on iTunes. We just finished another podcast on Saturday. We have another one coming out as well. And uh, it's a new world for me, unlike yourselves, guys. So I'm I'm kind of like, you know, bringing in people from the film business who've been around a long time. They're coming on my show and we kind of like talk about a, my cage wage years a little bit and about how the business is and forms and shapes.
0: And you also brought on our friend, Lindsey Gibb, who we yes. met by doing this project. And who helped introduce us to you. So, I mean, like, she's great. I was listening to your podcast with her today. I mean, her book is amazing. We talk about it every time she's on. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I thank you. Special shout out to Lindsay Gibb here, who, you know, I'm sure made it all the way to the end because just listening to stories about Cage and listening to you talk, it just, it's fascinating.
2: Yeah, I, I think we should have had a very long podcast with Lindsay. We could have gone on on a very, you know, back and forth questionnaire. We didn't. We just kind of cut it short around an hour. But we could have gone on for hours like we did. It wouldn't have stopped. She had a bu- an abundance of questions which we didn't get to. So, and her book was enlightening. I love her book. I love her book too. Loved it. And she was, you know, she she made me think. The guy who was in the shadows is coming out who's me. I didn't see Nick the way she saw Nick. You know, I was going through the motions and she went through the internal motions and yeah. wrote about it and then I was like, well, that makes a lot of sense. This girl's like on the ball. This lovely girl. So uh, I was very happy to read the book. I was happy to have her on my podcast.
0: Yeah, her book, National Treasure, Nicholas Cage is wonderful. And also, I do want to take a little bit of credit, a tiny bit of credit, that we've helped her fall in love with Keanu Reeves. Yes, because she's been on that <laughs> podcast too. So she, we, you know, we had her fall in love with him by doing that. So I don't think she's gonna be writing a Keanu book anytime soon. But yeah, you know, that's great. Yeah. Well, so thank you again, Marco, so 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 much for giving us so much of your time. I loved hearing about your stories. Mm. I love watching these movies I mean again I said this at the very top like I can't think of a better decade for any actor in terms of like the range of films he did the places you got to go I mean you were there for all of it and I'm just, I'm supremely jealous and honored that you got to, that you were able to speak to us today <laughs>
2: well I'm listen I I'm very thankful myself and, and I'm I'm very thankful and I tell Kelly and Blake and the other guys every single day so I'm not bitter about any of this stuff and I'm thrilled to be on your show I'm so happy you asked me and uh, you know I've endless stories as the guys know and Endless stories. These were just little tiny things that I'm answering. It could go on for about 15 different sessions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, for all things Cage Club and all the movies that we talked about today, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. Our podcast is on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can find Marco's podcasts on iTunes and on his website. All sorts of fun, free things for you to listen to at all those places. Lots of great stories to be told. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Marco Kiris. And we'll see you next time on Cage Club.